Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm doing very well. Darren, I saw myself in the mirror the other day and and frightened myself considerably. I, 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 this, this lockdown is, um, is, is having its effect. Um, Darren, I want you to think carefully before you answer this question. How are you? I'm good. I'm very good, Andrew. Good. I'm keeping, keeping good. I'm keeping myself sane. It's all, it's all good so far. Uh, and this week, uh, we're continuing our trip around the world, bringing the world to listeners' ears in this time of self-quarantine, self-isolation. So we're running a little later this year. Our schedules got knocked off a little bit. We're no longer doing Anime April. We are just doing Anime. Yeah. Uh, see what we did there. I don't, I, I don't know how we missed this. Like, it's so, <laughs> so obvious. But it is like... I blame Darren. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, thanks. Thanks, that's our guest there, getting off to a good start. Um, as always, we have the wonderful Graham Day joining us for our anime. Hello. And the wonderful Breed Martin. How are you guys? How are things? We're good. How are you? Going slowly <laughs> mad. <laughs> I'm good. We're, 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 again, it's nice to know that even three years into a podcast, we can still learn things. Like, anime is a much cooler name than Anime April. It's a learning curve. We're getting there. So this year, uh, what we're going to do is we decided what we, we do is we take a look at kind of two of the anime movies in the top 250 linked around theme. So, you know, last year we did uh, Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind. We did uh, Akira, which are two of the non-Ghibli films on the list. The year before that, we did the double feature of, you know, uh, My Neighbor Totoro and Gra- Graveyard of the Fireflies, which are obviously released as a double feature in 1988. This year, our point of connection is perhaps a little more tenuous. We're doing the two anime movies directed by Hayao Miyazaki with the word castle in the title. So this week, we're going to be doing Castle in the Sky, Laputa. And next week, uh, we're going to be doing Howl's Moving Castle. So yeah, so that's that's pretty much what we're doing this year. And to kick us off, uh, we're starting with Hayao Miyazaki's 1986 Laputa Castle in the Sky, uh, which is an interesting film on a number of levels. Um, as we alluded to last year when we talked about uh, Nausicaa, which is technically not a Studio Ghibli film, but has been retroactively folded into the brand. It's counted among the Studio Ghibli releases, but it wasn't actually produced by Studio Ghibli because Studio Ghibli didn't actually exist at that point. It was the success of Nausicaa at the uh, Japanese box office that allowed Maizaki, um, along with his uh, two key artistic collaborators, Aiseo Takahata, who would direct uh, Graveyard of the Fireflies, and also Toshio Suzuki, um, who had worked as editor at, Anim- uh, at Animage magazine who basically, off the success of Nausicaa, decided to come together to found a studio. And that studio would basically serve as kind of a hub for Japanese animators and would become Studio Ghibli. It's interesting because a lot of people don't tend to see Laputa or Castle in the Sky as a studio, you know, as the first Studio Ghibli film. It's not really seen in that regard. A lot of that gets shifted backwards to Nausicaa. You look at Nausicaa as the point of origin for it. And again, this probably points to something interesting about how Castle in the Sky was developed. Because Castle in the Sky was originally developed, there's a lot of pressure to develop it as a sequel to Nausicaa. Because Nausicaa had been such a big success, because you were launching a new studio, because Miyazaki kind of had people leaning on him saying, make another movie that will be as successful, as financially, you know, enriching as Nausicaa. He said, no, 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 I want to do something slightly different. But it's interesting because I think you can see a lot of Nausicaa kind of in the film. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's 
it's very, very much, it has a very, very strong aesthetic connection. In fact, actually, some fans of Nausicaa tend to believe that, you know, this unfolds within the same universe. This may be seen as a prequel to Nausicaa, kind of like a pre-apocalyptic to its post-apocalyptic. And you get, yeah, a lot of that, like, I mean, a lot of that stands the stuff that it has, Maizaki's recurring interest in it, that theme of ecology, some of the character designs are very simple, they're very similar, there's the fox squirrels as well, there's that Maizaki interest in flying and stuff like that, that provides a kind of a bridge between the two. But before we get into that, quick question, just to start us all off, had you guys, had everybody here seen Laputa, uh, Cast in the Sky, before this? Uh, yeah, I had seen it before, years ago, like, years and years ago, when I was kind of going through, um, my, kind of my Ghibli uh, tenure as a as a young lad, uh, I I I was just watching. You're a little giblet. <laughs> as many as I could find, like, and I happened across Laputa uh, Castle in the Sky, uh, and it was the dub as well. So I I watched the dub again here with Breed, and oh yeah, that'll be one of our four questions. <laughs> We're going slightly off format. Let's here. not get off format. I think it's one of the few um, Ghibli films I hadn't actually seen prior to watching this. I don't know. I think it slipped me at some mm. point. But um, yeah. And Andrew, what about yourself? Had you seen it before? I had not. Um, and I um, and I saw the sub. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I just saw this for the first time. <laughs> I love this. We're going to have one of those classic experiences where people are talking about different different versions of the same film. Much like our Aliens podcast. Where exactly. I think Andrew watched, the, Andrew watched the regular theatrical cut. I watched the director's cut. And we're like, yeah, no, no, that scene was, didn't happen. That wasn't in the version <laughs> that I saw. Um, yeah, it, did. it wasn't a conscious choice. I just turned it on on uh, Netflix and it was the sub. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess, um, I guess that's decided for me. That's um, <laughs> they probably I mean, have I, both. So I know with it, even even with uh, foreign like television shows, they have um, like there is the, that German television show Dark. I turned that on, and it was in English. They dubbed it. Like, what? Um, so yeah. You you, ha you were specifically watching Dark to learn German, though. Yes. Yeah. Why was he learning? Was he watching Laputa to learn Japanese? Well, actually, Andrew did study a bit of Japanese when he was in secondary school, as I recall. I did. I didn't get very far with it. I did. I did take it up again um, a, f a few years later, but um, a, on 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 both attempts, um, didn't get didn't get too far there's actually that's a kind of an interesting point of discussion actually in terms of dubs and subs because obviously we've talked about this on the podcast before there is a divide in the kind of anime community about what's the best way to watch these whether to watch with the japanese with the english subtitles so as to get the original soundtrack or to watch the kind of dub that has been sort of remastered and maybe worked for american or british or kind of westernized audiences and what's interesting is that this is probably one of the films where there is the most significant difference at least within sort of the major ghibli canon in terms of the difference that exists between the dub and the sub version. We'll talk a bit more in detail when we get to the spoiler zone about it, but like the entire soundtrack was famously reworked. Um, Joe Hisachi, yeah, Joe Hisachi, who uh, was responsible for the soundtrack, he re-recorded the soundtrack for the American version. The original soundtrack for Laputa ran to about 60 minutes. So there was about, you know, half, you know, half of the runtime 
in terms of original music that was there. It was mostly performed with synthesizers, and it was scored in a way that was deemed to be very Japanese. And we'll talk maybe about that in the spoiler zone. For the American version, he worked with the Seattle Symphony Orchestra and produced a full 90 minutes of new soundtrack uh, to accompany it. And in fact, actually... So no synth? Or did they have the Seattle um, Orchestra... Um, Seattle Symphony Orchestra, if you will. Hi-yo! Miyazaki. Hi-yo, Miyazaki. Um, but yes. No, so basically he also, and he scored it kind of in an American style, um, and he worked with the orchestra as well, gave it a more orchestral feeling. Did it sound Did it sound like Forever Goes West? <laughs> Was it like a Don Blute kind of? Did it sound like Aaron Copeland kind of? It's much more John Williams. I see. I was just thinking another good way of learning Japanese would be to watch the English dub with Japanese subtitles. I wonder if that's an option. That might not actually work with this particular case, though, uh, because they are radically, radically different. Um, I watched the I watched it three times for this podcast. Jesus. Well, I'm very thorough. I watched it in English. I then watched it in Japanese with the English subtitles. Then I watched it in English with the English subtitles. And that was a gonzo experience, let me tell you. Is everything okay? Yeah. <laughs> I'm good, Andrew. I'm very <laughs> this, good. Is not, this is not unusual behavior anyway, at least. No, yeah. no, it's not. Was it when we did once a time? At least this is only two hours long. It was when we watched Once Upon a Time in America. That's when this reached sort of dangerous levels. Four versions of the film, all of them four hours long. Never let it be said I don't suffer for this art form. Well, that was um, for a special kind of sixteen-hour-long extra. Oh no, wait. Um, yeah, you did see cats. You saw two versions of cats. I did see two versions of cats. How many times did you see cats? Twice. Cats was the first movie I saw in a cinema in 2020. It is also like one of only 12 movies that I will see in a cinema in 2020 based on the way that this thing is unfolding. One of my last cinematic memories will be Cats. Was the second one Rise of Skywalker? Uh, no, <laughs> which is great. What a way to start a year. Um, <laughs> no, no. What I saw Cats and I saw Sky Rise of Skywalker in mid-December as on the press screening. And then Cats made the bottom 100. So we had to watch Cats again. And so for that, I took my first trip to the cinema in 2020 on like the 3rd of January to go and see Cats. I feel like you episode. probably saw it a third time though, right? Because there was, a version, there was a version without the, uh, the, the ring and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, don't. No, <laughs> no that, that's a separate version. That, the butthole cut doesn't actually exist. Or does it? Yeah. Is, there's no butthole the, cut? There is a butthole cut. No, the issue is that he was editing shots that where it looked like there was a butthole cut. Apparently there was never actually a butthole cut. That's the official line. It just was a cut where it looked like there were buttholes. Not according to the guy who was employed to remove all the buttholes. Yeah, he says he can't, he can't unsee what he saw. Um, but yes, welcome to our second podcast covering cats. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, what we're doing, what we're actually here to discuss today is Laputa Castle in the Sky. Um, so before we jump into the spore zone on it, we're going to ask three quick questions uh, to get us going. Uh, so, Graham. Yeah. Do you think that Laputa Castle in the Sky is one of the top 250 movies ever made? Uh, no. No, I do not. Um, it's a very good film. It's beautifully made. Uh, its designs are brilliant. Um... But apart from that, uh, the characters are okay. 
and the story is is decent but no it's nothing exemplary especially when you compare it to other ghibli works that do similar things so no it's not uh that are also in the list and are not in the list um so no it's not one of the top 250 for me out of curiosity, when you say comparing it to not, uh, to to films, Ghibli films in particular, that do similar things, because again, this is one of the things when I was watching it, my mind kept going back to Nausicaa. Yeah, and and that was very much one of the things where I was, I really loved Nausicaa. We talked about it last year. It's a phenomenal film, and a lot of Castle in the Sky to me seemed to be retreading it, but but in a way that was a lot more simple, a lot more conventional. A lot less, you know, pointed and, and ambitious in some ways. I think than that is that were that was that the kind of film that you were thinking of, or were you thinking of other films? A lot less challenging, I think, as well. Still good. Nothing like I'm not taking it away from it, but it's. It, I really don't want to say dumbed down, but it, it feels like a lesser version. Like if like it does feel like a sequel or at least a companion piece to it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't enjoy. Like I liked it. I very much enjoyed it, but I didn't like this. I didn't come away from it like I did with Nausicaa or, you know, Howl's Moving Castle or any or really most Ghibli films. There's very few Ghibli films that I come away from them going, that was good. But I can keep on going with my life without going without like shouting it from the rooftops. This is an amazing film to watch. Like I do that with a lot of Ghibli films. He does. That is that is that is where you'll it find. Is. I'm on rooftops often. <laughs> Um, Especially I'm... now. <laughs> I must say the neighbours have been complaining during the isolation that Graham... There's a small child underneath us. She just keeps getting freaked out. We gave him roof access and explained... Oh, no like, one gave this... him roof access. Now, there's only... Own... Yeah. There's only... <laughs> there's only one of these keys. Okay? There's not, there's two. So don't use it for frivolous reasons. But yes, um, and in, t- in terms of, of Laputa, actually, because it's funny you should mention um, the uh, the idea of it being kind of dumbed down. I'm not sure, I, I, you know, or, or kind of, as Andrew said, less challenging. And I find this is one of the interesting things about it, where it feels like it is, and this is rather strange because, you know, obviously one of the differences culturally between Japan and the West in terms of animation is that in, that, in the West, we tend to see animation as a children's medium, as a medium primarily for kids. In Japan, it, it's a lot more kind of, you know, all ages, kind of family focused. But even outside of that, you can have anime that's aimed at kind of adults and, and grown-ups that you really wouldn't have in, in Western markets or you wouldn't have had around the time this was released. Well, I, I, I don't. I don't know, but I don't. Maybe, maybe to more of an extent, but I, I think they hit the. I would say that like the history of grown-up animation, like we mightn't, we, I guess, I guess we don't think of the Flintstones as a, a as a grown-up. But TV it was on show, prime time. But I think at the time it was. It was. On prime time, yeah. yeah, it was basically like it. It was like something. It, it was. It was the honeymooners, but um, with dinosaurs. But. Um, but yeah, with dinosaurs. The Jetsons was the honeymoon, um, but with flying cars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They, 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 and and, and th- that they were that they were intended. That I believe they were shown at prime time. Like it wasn't Saturday mornings. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then you like you have stuff kind of um, obviously the Simpsons, but you 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 have the wave um, of stuff after the Simpsons, like say King of the Hill, for example. Dilbert, even you could argue Family Guy, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, Bar- um, uh, Barbarella is that one? <laughs> is that the uh, Stripperella? Is that it? 
one of the aliens. <laughs> um, <there's, laughs> I can't think yeah, of what there, it there is. Yeah, there is definitely something called Stripperella. Um, Barbarella was a live action a, a, one. Um, yeah, with Jane Fonda. Yeah, with Jane Fonda, yeah. Really? Oh, okay. Am I thinking Are of Barbara? Are you thinking Barbara? of the one with Pamela um, Anderson? Yeah, no, that's Barb Wire. Yeah, Barb what Wire? was that? And that was live no, action. Oh, no, no. It was with Pamela Anderson, but I feel like it was anime. It was also a, was a, also a detective. Um, <laughs> quite possibly. But I feel like I've also dreamt that other people were talking about. Um, <laughs> and... There was also a, a uh, like uh, a show with uh, I think Jason Jason Alexander voicing some duck, and uh, well he voiced yeah. uh, he was a Dilbert he voiced <laughs> Catbird and Dilbert if I remember correctly. Oh yeah, no, he's in Dilbert, all right. But there was there was some. Um... <laughs> Are we going to the fact zone? Okay, we're going to the fact Can machine. We... We're going to check this, and we're back from the fact machine for a double feature. It turns out. Turns out that yes, in fact, Jason Alexander did appear in Duckman, the animated show around 1994. It's so not quite Ducktales, uh, but Duckman Ooh. is what it's called. And yes, indeed, Andrew, you called it correctly. Pamela Anderson did star in a one-season, 13-episode-long animated TV show, Stanley's Stripperella. <laughs> available uncensored on spike dvd at the moment if you get that nostalgic urge yes that's the urge you'll get yeah it'll be a thing though where um is it is it called the is it the mandela effect or is it that i just conjured now and now it exists as a result of that yeah we'll never know featuring a cast including mark hamill john cryer tom kenny kid rock Vince McMahon. Oh. So yes, this is Stripperella, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Um, but back to what we were talking about How here on the podcast, nominally at least. Um, Castle in the Sky. Um, and this is the thing where, you know, I was mentioning that there is that gap that exists. And maybe it's not as pronounced as it once was. And maybe it is exaggerated for rhetorical effect. But I think, generally speaking, uh, there is a sense that, like, in Japan, you know, anime is seen as being something that kind of has a broader appeal than a lot of conventional animation in the West. And what's interesting about Castle in the Sky is that it's really the... And again, you know, I say this as as somebody who, who loves, like, you know, thinks My Neighbor Totoro is better than Grave of the Fireflies, for example. Yes. But it really feels <laughs> watching, uh, you know, Castle in the Sky, that it feels like it's Nausicaa, but for kids. Yeah. It feels very much like it's an attempt to produce a kind of a, an almost Disney-style version. And I say Disney-style version, there are a lot of guns in this. There's a lot of cannons and explosions. There is a high death count in this film. There's a very high death count. But... Yeah, in the first, in the sorry, in the final act, there's a high body count. Oh yeah, a lot of mass murder. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. It no, yeah, 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 it is. It is essentially mass murder. What what happens? Okay, but can you hear us? No. Okay. No. No hearing. Uh, can't hear you. No. Okay. Yes, touch ear, got ear. Can you, you can hear us, can you? Give me a thumbs up if you can hear me. Oh, yes, yeah, you're coming in. Oh, now I can't hear Darren. Guys, this is the most fun part about <laughs> recording remotely. a podcast <laughs> remotely. It is, it's actually. It's yeah. Yeah. The chaos. This is, all, this is what it should be. It should just be us kind of saying, can you hear me now? <laughs> over and over again. No, not, not the listeners. Yeah. No, no, the other person on the podcast. The guests. Yeah. 
best thing is when you make a joke and there's a delay and there's no laugh, but then they catch up with the delay and there's still no laugh. Thanks, <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> okay, now press, you press the button. I think he just hung up on us. Did that hang up? Did it hang up? Oh, God damn it. And we're back from the technical issues machine. That, 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 thanks, Andrew. Um, <laughs> let's make it fun. <laughs> but yeah, so basically, um, in terms of, of uh, Castle in the Sky, Castle in the Sky feels very much like a sort of a Disney-esque version. And you even kind of have that with the, you know, the lovable orphans that are very much like something from a children's film or even like a superhero film. You have the kind of like the characters who have no real origin. Yeah. You, the fact that children, they're very much children, like uh, Patsu and um, Shita are both like younger and kind of prepubescent almost, and are very much kind of rapscallions who end up getting caught up in this. And yes, it is a bit darker in places than, you know, something like, I don't know, The Rescuers or The Rescuers Down Under to pick a contemporary American release. Um, it feels much more in line with that than, it kind of, than, you know, than Nausicaa, or it feels like halfway between Nausicaa and something like that. Or is maybe is, is that just me? Is that unfair? No, I think that sounds roughly accurate. Um, it's it's a very enjoyable film, and it's a, it's a great little adventure film. But there's just something lacking, slightly. Yeah, it's it. That's that's spot on. Actually, it's more of an adventure, I guess, than than um, than Nausicaa, Maybe you feel you feel feel more. I guess. Um, part of uh, the kind of quest that they're on, um, and it, and, and um, which which is maybe something it kind of um, has to its credit, but um, but yeah, le- less um, uh, less that you're kind of just observing the uh, the saga, I guess. Um, yeah, because it is. It's very much go, 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 and particularly in terms of structure. Like you, it you watch the film, and I watched it a couple of times now. It's two hours long, and it's very much broken into. Well, here's an action scene. Here's an exposition scene. We come out of the exposition scene into an action scene, and it's very much kind of you know what in like classic Doctor Who would be described as capture and escape, that old sort of structure where the characters are like constantly being chased and oh no, they manage to end up in a cave where they meet an old man who explains the plot to them and then they leave but the army shows up and they're let out but oh no, there's pirates and let's go back and mount a rescue mission but oh no, that doesn't quite work and it's like, you know, and there's very much a sense of and again, this is something that's kind of interesting in terms of storytelling and kind of Andrew mentioned it with like it's less challenging. There's very much a sense when you're watching it of the key point of the storytelling being how do we get to the next action beat or how do we get to the next kind of big development and like everything kind of lining up in order to kind of suit that. It doesn't feel like, you know, Nausicaa where it's like, well, we have these big ideas we're playing with. When you're watching Castle in the Sky, it feels like there are big ideas there and it deals with a lot of the same things. And we'll talk about that when we get into this war zone, but it feels like they're almost kind of secondary to, well, here's some really cool stuff that's happening and there's going to be more really cool stuff happening in a moment. So stick with us. Yeah, there's there's there was a lot of kind of stillness in uh, Nausicaa. I feel like we might have even spoken about it, but yeah, yeah, the 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 kind of, um, you know, it's sort of lingering in that world um and and let letting letting things kind of slow down and watch people 
watching people doing things um like the the whole um scene in Nausicaa of her uh, root root um like going into the forests and removing the 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 eye and all that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. And again, you, you I don't think you get anything quite as kind of melodical, kind of here, or quite sort of like lyrical or kind of poetic. Here, when you get scenes like that, they're just kind of smaller beats within exposition monologues, for example, or they're very very briefly dealt with, or they're almost like flashbacks, and it's very much like, well, let's get back to the fireworks yeah. factory, quite literally in some cases. Um, yeah, you'd be more likely yeah. to miss them. Yeah. As right. opposed to Nausicaa, where you kind of wallow in them. And again, that's kind of interesting. And I guess then, Breed, what about yourself? Do you think that this belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? No, I don't think so either, to be honest. Again, like, it's really enjoyable. It's it's a fast-paced adventure, and it's gorgeous to look at and listen to, but it's just not quite there for the top 250. Yeah, and particularly in terms of, say, Ghibli films as well. When we, you know, we've talked about Ghibli films, and they're always a delight to watch. This one, you know, like, and again, it's, it's one of those things where you're grading on a curve, where it's like, this is a great children's film. You know, it's really cool. It's really well made. It's really well constructed. And then you're like, but yet, or it's only, or, you know, you kind of, you have to qualify it by comparison to the other ones. And it feels yeah. like, yeah, it's an unfortunate situation for it to be in, I think. Hmm. There's always a caveat with this film. Yeah, I get. I guess, like, it's, it's, it's probably an important kind of um, departure, though. Um, and I, I think, I think maybe if all Ghibli movies were like Nausicaa or, or even kind of Grave of the Fireflies, I think they would, they would, they would, they would have a fandom, but I, I don't think it would be as large. Like they, this, this is it kind of seems to maybe point towards where, where a lot of, uh, Ghibli's success um, came from and having these really kind of bright uh vibrant um uh worlds where where um and i i suppose i suppose maybe them discovering a middle ground of 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 having of having very um kind of uh profound beautiful kind of um moving um uh, films the way the way kind of Nausicaa and uh, Grave of the Fireflies were, and also kind of them inhabiting this this very um, colorful world. Um, I yeah. guess, and I mean, I don't want to sound like I'm being dismissive of it because it's you know a, a more childlike or kind of you know more of a children's film than Nausicaa. I, I love Totoro, for example. I think My Neighbor Totoro is one of the best Ghibli films, and that is absolutely unquestionably aimed yeah. at younger children. I think I think my issue with with Castle in yeah. the Sky is that it kind of falls in a it, it's that and I think you kind of alluded to it there where it's like you know figuring out you can do multiple things with a Ghibli film this feels almost like it's trying to do too many things it feels like it's kind of caught between two stools yeah where it's like it's trying to be you know and and not to get too spoiler but it's trying to deal with some of the themes of Nausicaa about mankind's relationship with the world in which we live and with the concept of power and responsibility and kind of like the destruction and the ability to create and how they're intertwined with one another but it's also trying to be a fun run around with lovable kids and rapscallions who are orphans and they have flying ships and there are sky pirates and can't you just enjoy it for what it is and it's like it feels like trying to do yeah. too many things almost, even within a two-hour runtime. Like yeah, like it seem it seems like it's a bit light for 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 what it's about, and at the same time, 
it it seems like really violent <laughs> for for what it seems like as well um yeah so um, yeah it's it's definitely kind of um in some place but between those two still it's gonna say andrew you're gonna you're probably jumping ahead of me there but yes would it would you think andrew it belongs on the list of the 250 greatest films ever made um i mightn't no um i i i think i think i'd agree with with graham and breach which which is as darren says like it's not a a a big criticism of this movie it doesn't mean i don't like it it's just very difficult to belong on the top 250 movies of all time um, which is not to say that there is just good movies in the top 250. Yeah. <laughs> There's plenty of movies that aren't yeah. that great. Yeah. Um, that's, that's fair. Again, it's, it's great. This is like we mentioned. Keep listening to this podcast yeah. where we'll talk about them. Yeah, it's grading on a curve, except this time the curve is a, you know, it's a lot more flattering to Castle in the Sky. But no, I, I, I would agree with the assessment of three. I don't think this is one of the 250 greatest films ever made. I think it's only real argument is possible possibly that, that place that it has in terms of film history, in terms of being the first Studio Ghibli film. But even then, it feels like it's caught between, again, two stools. It's caught between Nausicaa, which is thematically and like technically, and in terms of Maizaki as a director and the, the collaborators with whom he's working, you know, unofficially the first Ghibli film. Might as well be the first Ghibli film. And then you have, on the other hand, the double feature of My Neighbor Totoro and Grave of the Fireflies, which is the moment at which people go, well... Ghibli are somebody to watch and it feels like Castle in the Sky almost kind of fits in the space between the two where despite technically being the first Ghibli film it's somehow less of a milestone than the films around it uh, it's a very strange situation for it to find itself in um, all right then and second question uh, Graham would it be on your own personal 250 now I mean you've had it probably no. a bit longer to sit with this no just no no okay. I mean the thing is it's really sad and like because the more we talk about it the more I realize there are there are much better Ghibli films that if I had a if I only had a handful of films or God 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 imagine two hundred and fifty films that I could watch on an island, um, <laughs> this would not be on them. There are much better anime films that are not even Ghibli films that uh, I would put on ahead of this. There, are, it's a good film. I'm not, like it's really sad to see, <laughs> it's really sad. but it's just like it's it's a it's a good film. And just because it doesn't deserve to be on my 250 or it doesn't deserve to be on the 250 does not mean it's a bad film. It just... I'm trying to understand, actually, why people have put this on the top 250. Because Nausicaa is there. Yep. And Nausicaa does everything this film does better. Well, I think it is... Is it about fandom? Like, is is it about kind of... Um... Not only, not only do you recognize that Miyazaki is good, but he's so good that 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 like 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 if you're comparing him to other directors, it's like well, well if um if that director has kind of seven or eight movies on the list, then then Miyazaki should have at least this well, I many. I would go with the fact that um, Ghibli has so many films that are more inventive, more that are far more unique in storytelling and design that are not on this list that I would put ahead of it. Yeah, but in terms That's, of Miyazaki's no in terms of Miyazaki's work though, you're talking primarily about things like Poco Rosso, for example. Um and you're talking Poco about films Ro like the, the The Wind Rises or The Wind Also Rises. Uh, um, um, but I'd I, be talking more the Cat Returns. Is that a Miyazaki? Like film? that's not specific okay. 
that's not specifically a Hayao Miyazaki yeah, film. That... I'm not. I'm not quite sure. But it is a Ghibli film, and it is wonderful. And te- and I think um, the prequel slash the the spiritual prequel to it, the Tales uh, Tales of the Heart, um, which follows one of the one of the a character in that as well. That those are far more interesting stories. Like like I said, the Cat Returns is a wonderful story that um, mm. has nothing uh, has far more interesting storytelling uh, inventions in it that I would far more go back to than this. Just because it's 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 a different side of it's a different side of Ghibli. But I think Andrew's more getting at the kind of the cult of Maizaki as an individual. Because again, like obviously uh, Ghibli, you know, has has multiple people involved. Uh, Takahata, mm. who we mentioned doing Grave of the Fireflies, has done several films uh, with them as well. He's the second most prolific director, and some of those are absolutely gorgeous. I'm trying to think of what's the one that has Chloe Grace Moretz that was released around 2013 ish. Uh, the other big Takahata film. Okay, we're gonna go to the fact machine check. <laughs> And we're back from the fact machine. I was thinking, in fact, um, it was it was Pompoco was the was the movie with the uh, with the raccoons with the giant testicles who who yeah, fly around. Thank yes. you, Andrew. Um, I, I realize, and, and that's Andrew's own suggestion. Andrew's own it, suggestion Andrew. for the great um, lost Ghibli classic. I was more suggesting the tale of Princess Ka- Kagua. Ah, uh, pre- oh yeah, I, we haven't actually watched that. But uh, but again, like that would be kind of one of the arguments people make as kind of a Ghibli classic. But like, if you look at its IMDb rating, it doesn't have you know it barely has twenty five thousand votes. Whereas you look at the Miyazaki films, and they have very strong followings. They have cult followings. And it's worth noting in in the case of Laputa in particular, Castle in the Sky, um, that has a kind of a weird situation where when it was initially released, again, this is a situation where it falls between two stools. It was. Not a huge success at the Japanese box office. It actually earned about a third less uh, than Nausicaa and the Valley of the Wind. And it also then learned le- earned less as well than the double feature that was released afterwards. But it has developed a very, very strong cultural impact, particularly in Japan. Um, and so you you see its kind of effect kind of lingering on. It's set... Um, and again, Andrew will appreciate this. Um, I'm not sure we can give the context for it in spoiler... Um, it's funny but, you laugh when you say that an airing of the Puta Castle in the Sky set the Twitter record for the most tweets sent in a single second when it aired in its annual spot I think in December 2012 when apparently the entire nation of Japan in union with the television broadcast of this movie that we are about to discuss tweeted balls at a moment in which a character in the film shouts balls in Japanese um, apparently there was this huge engagement and apparently they did it again two years later when the film aired on national television now obviously balls doesn't mean balls when you translate it into Japanese uh, but it's just fun to say um, it's a, it's a, characters shouted at the climax of the film <laughs> and it was tweeted out but even like um, outside of that things like what is known colloquially as the, the Laputa effect uh, where the influence of the film on Japanese video games uh, in particular, and say the Final Fantasy films, uh, sorry, Final Fantasy games, where several key design choices have been actually cited as being lifted from at Laputa. But even like protagonist archetypes, um, characters like Puzu and characters like Shita, um, you know, the magical girlfriend in particular is, is one of those anime tropes. Crystals. Yep, crystals and things like that, all taken or like traced back to uh, and popularized by Laputa. So it is massively influential in Japan and it does have a very strong and very vocal fan base. So I think I can see why it made the list, uh, being entirely honest. 
Uh, but Breed, what about yourself? Would it be on your own personal Twitter? As we've been talking about it, I've been trying to pin down exactly what it is. And what I realise is, compared to many of the other Miyazaki films, you can watch it and thoroughly enjoy it while you're watching it, but it doesn't really stay with you afterwards, is the problem I've noticed. Like, a lot of the other films... They kind of, you find yourself thinking about them and they, they come to mind. This, it was just a perfectly enjoyable film and that's it. Yeah. So no, basically. <laughs> no, I joked I've watched this three times the podcast and when I remember bits of it, I'm like, wait, was that Nausicaa? Um, and that's watching it three times in the space <laughs> of three days. Um, so that's pretty intense. And Andrew, what about yourself? Uh, what? Would I, would I recommend uh, no. it? <laughs> would it be on um, your own personal to <laughs> yeah. Just jumping ahead. Yeah. Um, no, uh, no pr- probably not. Probably not. I'd, 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 um, I definitely have uh, my neighbor Totoro. I don't know if I said I would have Nausicaa on, but uh, I, I think that's growing um, in my um, kind of esteem. The further I get from it. And that was the second time I watched it. Anyway, we're talking about uh, <laughs> Castle in I love that, that, the Sky. I love, I love the idea that our Castle in the Sky podcast is basically Nausicaa 2. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, who knows? Maybe maybe, uh, maybe this was a sequel to Nausicaa as well. We see that there, 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 there's, um, there's, there's craters on the landscape. Um um yeah the, like the um yeah but i i i think the, the those fan theories are not out there at no, all no no it's they're entirely logical you can very clearly draw the lines yeah. between the two i mean there are literally yeah. fox squirrels in both imaginary sort of eevee like there are there's yeah, eevees, there are eevees in, this. in this i mean even again this is a light spoiler but i mean you probably are familiar with the design even the robots in the film look like design elements of the God Warrior from Nausicaa, to pick another yep. example. Yeah. I mean, and you know, we, we talked on Nausicaa about how much Hayao Mazaki loves breasts. There's another sequence in here where you have a nurturing breast joke for no reason whatsoever. And even like the, the love of air, the use of airships, for example, an introductory sequence in which characters conduct a raid on an airship in which gregarious characters or supporting characters are introduced. You know, last time it was Patrick Stewart's bearded wonder. This time it's Cloris Leachman's sort of maniacal air pirate. But again, you have that same sense of structure and rhythm running through the film as well. Yeah, so I, I, I don't think those fan theories are out there. I think it's very clear that they are connected, even if Miyazaki himself didn't want to do an Oscar sequel. Um, he very clearly didn't. He wanted to make a movie that was original and different and distinct while also feeling like a spiritual companion to it. Um, and so again, caught between those two stools. That just sounds like he wanted his cake so he could yeah. eat it. Yeah, it, like, it's, an... it's like the studio execs were like, we really want you to make a Nausicaa sequel. It's like, there is no way I'm going to do that. I'm going to do this instead. And it's like, Oh well, um, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I mean, it's like, has anyone noticed that he's just done what we told him to do? Right? Yeah, but let's let, uh, let's let films. him exactly. Yeah, yeah. Let's let him think that he's 
he's getting his own you way. You've got to follow your artistic vision. We're all yeah. happy. <laughs> Particularly if it leads you towards yeah. a Nausicaa sequel. Um, but yeah, yeah, there, there is a, a lot of that. Now, again, there are very specific references and some some cultural touchstones that are different. We'll talk about those in the spoiler zones, but yeah, very much that. And I would agree with that. It's not likely to make my 250. I think, and actually, yeah, I think I'd agree with Andrew in terms of my 250. The Ghibli films on there would probably be My Neighbor Totoro and maybe even Nausicaa. I have a huge soft spot for Nausicaa, which is probably why I, I'm not overly taken with Castle in the Sky, because it feels very much like it's, you know, not a flattering comparison, I think. Um, and, and I say that as somebody who really enjoyed um, Castle in the Sky. Which then brings us to the third question, third and final question. So, Graham, if listeners have not yet watched Castle in the Sky, and if you're listening in the UK and Ireland, you can watch it on Netflix. If you're in the US, you can now buy it digitally for the first time uh, online on stores like Google Play, Amazon Prime, and Vudu uh, since Christmas. But if listeners have not watched The Puda Castle in the Sky, would you recommend they pause the podcast, stay indoors, and start streaming to a local television set? Uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, just because it's not part of the 250 uh sorry i think it doesn't deserve it doesn't mean that it's not a good film it's 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 an enjoyable film it's great for families and actually during now like right now during what we're living through the whole collection of having studio ghibli on, on the uk and uh irish netflix is pretty fantastic just as a family experience um so yeah i would definitely recommend to uh people to watch uh castle in the sky because you know Mark Hamill's in it. <laughs> yes, Mark yes. Hamill's in it. He's the bad guy. Yeah, Andrew wants oh, wow. the subtitled version. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Mark Hamill's not in the subtitled version. That would be quite impressive he if he been. was. been. <laughs> uh, and Breed, would you recommend it? I'm, I'm kind of torn. Um, I'd recommend it in the way that I'd recommend in general watching all Ghibli films. But for instance, if someone was act- acting asking for a recommendation of you know, what's the best one to watch or what are like the top three or, you know, which one should I really make sure I see? I probably wouldn't be including it. Here's a question. And this is probably a light spoiler for next year's anime. Is it better or worse than Spirited Away? (laughs) Ah. I have a complicated relationship with Spirited Away. Yeah, they'll get a lot of hate. Okay, uh, no, we'll, resolved... we'll get it. We'll wait that for next year. Yeah. yeah, I've resolved to rewatch it and see what I think. Okay. okay. Yeah. That's so. not the question, though. <laughs> no, well, no, no. We'll, we'll leave it until next year then. Okay, set up our well, teaser. if the question we'll... is right now, which would I rather uh, watch yeah. or recommend? Yeah. Then, yeah. <laughs> Castle in the okay. Sky. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. All right. Keeping, keeping it positive this pod watch. And Andrew, what about yourself? Would you recommend people watch Castle in the Sky? Yeah, it's, um, it's delightful. It's exciting. It's gorgeous. Um, I think, I, th- I, I, I think, I think, I think we we've spoken about it a lot. Um, and it's kind of unfair to the movie. I think in in that it just kind of suffers by comparison uh, to Nausicaa. I think if you didn't know about uh, Nausicaa and hadn't seen it, you'd you'd probably enjoy this a lot more. But I, 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 yeah, it mightn't it mightn't um, have uh, the same impact um as, as as some of the other um movies in the in the in the ghibli canon but um but no it's tremendous it's 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 really great fun um and i i would definitely recommend uh, that people watch it and it's on netflix so go for it it's also on hbo max if, if you have that i think 
look at you using JustWatch.com. <laughs> but yes, no, yes, I would. I would. I would. What what is it? Um, um, uh, there was a tweet. The the entire Ghibli library coming to HBO Max means that a whole new generation will rediscover Pompoco, a movie where raccoons use their giant balls as parachutes to dive bomb the cops. How often do you want to like? Have you even watched the film yet? That was, that was Tristan A. Cooper. Yeah. <laughs> Have I watched like a that movie yet? No. It should just be done for that film because Andrew really, really wants to see it. <laughs> I need to see it. Mm. And and we don't. Andrew doesn't get to watch movies unless they're on the two fifty anymore. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> so that might be next year's bonus anime episode. Um, but yes, um, I would kind of fourth the opinion here, generally speaking, which is yes, it's it's quite good. It's great fun. Good to watch with the family. It's kind of a nice intersection between that sort of uh, you know family friendly American style animation where it's all rapscallions having adventures and kind of running around, and also the kind of like just something slightly edgier where there's a lot more violence and brutality and horror in it as well. That's kind of provides a nice little bit of contrast and kind of flavor in there. Um, so yeah, I, w- I would wholeheartedly recommend. I think it's worth seeking out. Uh, I think it's worth your time, particularly at the moment. It's probably a nice little sort of way of decompressing. I think as well. With that in mind, then we'll segue. Yeah, in. if Akira is too much for you, uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> just ease yourself in. Yeah. Uh, with that in mind, then we'll segue neatly into the spoiler zone. So, Breed, what is Castle in the Sky about for you? At its heart, it is, you know, your good old-fashioned adventure. It's this boy who has been waiting for them. And I do see him as the protagonist more so than Sheeta. She Adventure literally falls into his arms. And he yes. follows it. <laughs> <laughs> and you're, you're basically along for the ride. Um... It's it's fascinating because when you first meet her, you kind of assume, okay, girl, everyone's looking for her. She has a special crystal. Obviously, she's your main character. And then she's not, which is quite interesting. Yeah, she's been described as, again, that, that cliche of the magical girlfriend. Mm. As the, the, the object that literally falls from the sky and brings life to uh, Paz, Patsu's life, you know, to Patsu, basically. And then you have, like, even even the journey that goes through over the course of the film. Is... Are there other types of girlfriends that... <laughs> <laughs> there are waifus. That, thank you, Andrew. <laughs> But yes, but yes, the idea that, yeah, that basically she, she serves as a way to kind of, to bring that kind of, like, to, to motivate Patsu to have that adventure and to go out into the world. And again, it's very much, he's the one who has the big kind of journey because he's revealed to have, you know, his father who saw the castle and he was mocked by the people around him, which by the way, I feel like Uncle Pom probably could have helped. Yeah. Feel like maybe yeah. Uncle Pom, you know, as handy as he is for your big exposition scene when you just handily fall into a mine, I feel like maybe if Uncle Pom had been like, you know, castles actually could fly. When I feel like he was, Darren, and I don't know if his testimony is something that was that would have <laughs> necessarily I feel that might have something to do with why I, he's living in a cave. I have some thoughts about Uncle Pom. 
<laughs> okay. Do, do, do we want to jump, jump ahead? To Let's that? just jump ahead to Uncle Palm. So yeah, um, what do you guys think um, is the story with Uncle Palm? He he's he says he's been speaking to rocks all his life, and that it's a stone. <laughs> it is a very powerful stone that can bring great happiness, but also great misery. This is like what is this movie about for you? It's about that crystal. It's about that ball of sight. I, I wish it's... that people could see the intensity in Andrew's eyes right now. As he describes... Just... Uncle Palm is a crack addict. <laughs> Absolutely. He's, he's, he's on that rocks. white like Othello. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, he's chasing his rocks. He's, yeah, he's, he's very much kind of, yeah. It's uh, yeah. that was interesting because I wasn't I was I was more expecting a Pom Poco reference there, Andrew. So oh. that was a yeah, I was expecting that. Um, but yeah, no, no, it is. And again, like the the thing with Uncle <laughs> Palm though is like Uncle Palm is one of those aspects of the film where it's like the storytelling construction of the movie is is very evident. Where it's like go 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 go. Don't stop to think about any of this. So it's like. Well, we've had, you know, the sequence where the pirates have kind of, you know, forced Sheeta out of the plane, out of the airship. We've had Sheeta, you know, found by Patsu. The pirates have come to capture her and then there's a chase. Well, after this has happened, well, whoa, 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 whoa. We got to slow down and we got to explain the plot. So let's have them land in the mine. <laughs> have this old man wander out of nowhere. Mysteriously have just about all the answers that we need to give the audience at this point in the movie to tell them what's going on. And then have him never appear or be but mentioned. Here's but here's the thing. Where would he appear? They just find another cave and he's there? No, that's his cave. They're not going back to that cave. He's gone. That was like Just to cast the focus away from him. And to, yeah. like, in case you're going to say, wait, who is this guy? He's like, who are these guys? What are they yeah. doing in this cave? In my cave, yeah. yeah. It's perfectly normal for me to be here. What are these yeah. guys? That's the unusual event. There are some apparitions, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they're dropping in on his story of life in the cave. That's it exactly. It's like you feel like there's an Uncle Palm movie out there somewhere that explains like like does he does he ever leave the cave? Where does he go for food and sustenance? It's a heartbreaking movie. <laughs> That's fair. It's very much like Winter's Bone. Or, ra or rain over movie. me. How does Patsu uh, know him if he never leaves the cave? Because Patsu goes to the cave. It seems a bit out of the way. So yeah. everywhere's out of the way in that place. Fair. I mean, I, I do quite like Andrew's point, though, that it is a much more depressing and bleak movie about Uncle Palm, to be told. Something that's very much about how these communities are ravaged by So why is he smiling? But <laughs> well, he's high, Graham. He's <laughs> high. Why is Andrew smiling? <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. He's just cracked open some of that sweet value side. By the way, uh, again, one of the differences between the dub and the sub. Uh, in the dub, it's called Ethereum. Uh, in the uh, sub, it's called Volosite, uh, which is... How much did Ethereum pay to have it, it called? <laughs> <laughs> they could just have another bit, uh, another cryptocurrency called Volosite. Except <laughs> it do. does sound very volatile, and people are worried about cryptocurrency as a store of words. So maybe Volosite isn't best. It also sounds like it's going to explode. Um, <laughs> but yeah. it does explode. Doesn't it? No, no, the currency. 
Oh, although I, right. I do think you could turn that into a marketing ploy. Uh, Wallace site is going to explode, baby. Um, yeah, this isn't like one of those lame currencies. This is a currency for men with balls. Yeah, like po- poco size balls. <laughs> oh my god, exactly. poco size. This is not a podcast what? about about Laputa Castle in the Sky. No, I'm sorry. <laughs> but yes, um, but the. To bring it back to the film, and to bring it back to Uncle Palm, and the sad story that Andrew was suggesting there, about people who are dispossessed, who are addicted, who are kind of falling into these substance abuse issues, who are falling between the cracks of our society. Actually, to be fair, I actually have a point I'm building to here, which is the actual mining community. Um, Because one of the big things that kind of, that uh, Miyazaki wanted to focus on on the films, one of the big differences between it and Nausicaa in terms of his focus is this idea of the mining community because it was inspired by a trip that he took after the, after the success of Nausicaa because he wanted to go clear his head. He wanted to go get a fresh start. He wanted to basically come back with a whole bunch of fresh ideas that he could use to develop the film. And one of the places that he went, he visited Wales and he's, he's fallen in love with Wales. He's talked about how much he oh, wow. absolutely loved, loved Wales and it's a huge influence on the film, a huge influence on the production. And again, like throughout Mazaki's work, one of the interesting things about him as a filmmaker is that synthesis of western and particularly european influences and japanese influences kind of bring the two together because cast in the sky is a very european influenced film so we'll talk about some of the ways in which it is outside of wales just later on but specifically with regard to wales he was in wales in 1984 so he was there during the miners strike and he actually noted that like this was something that very profoundly moved him this sort of this tale of these communities that had been marginalized that were struggling to survive and struggling to continue to exist and he felt something kind of resonated with him and he wanted to find a way to include them and to fold them into cast in the sky it's been noted that like Maizaki, who is like an old lefty in terms of Japan. In fact, he's generated some controversy with people of his own generation because of his, you know, radical pacifism and his his strong support of kind of like Japanese pacifism in an era where people are beginning to interrogate that, where you've seen politicians becoming more eager to kind of push for militarization and for armament and stuff like that. Maizaki has been very stringent and very sort of like pacifist in his ideals. And what's interesting is that you could argue that one of the reasons why Wales resonated with him was because it would have evoked, say, the uh, coal miners' strike in 1960 in Mike in Japan, uh, which was an incident where basically the Japanese left was kind of handicapped. What what happened is that Japan is not necessarily a hugely resource-rich country. Um, it only really has a couple of coal deposits in particular locations. Mike is one of those locations. And while there, the unions, the, basically the miners had begun to unionize and to organize Largely as a result of the influence of Americans, actually, as a result of the post-Second World War reconstruction. And those miners have kind of like embraced the idea of unionization. And the major companies were obviously not particularly happy with that. And you had a situation in 1960 where it came to an absolute head, where the miners were basically told, well, look, we're going to be laying half of you off. And the miners said, no, what we'll do in that case is we'll stop the movement of coal. They actually stopped trains packed with coal from leaving the stations. And what happened is the companies managed to through sheer force of arms and by banding together and again this is one of things where you had several different coal companies where you had other coal companies subsidizing the coal companies in mike in order to help them break the unions and they actually managed to break the back of the unions it's a moment that's been described as one of the key moments in the history of the japanese labor movement because it sort of demonstrated that the unions could never really grab a hold in the kind of in that sort of labor industry in japan at least not in the context of the 60s and so the sense in which Maizaki has been suggested, Maizaki's affection for the Welsh coal miners in 1984 
is a reflection of kind of that own kind of like simmering or kind of residual tension from the coal mine strikes um, in in Japan as well. Because it is, it's it's very much kind of a parochial kind of story. The it's very much kind of a story of a community that is is dying. Um, and again, you have that opening scene, those establishing sequences where Patsu, who is an orphan, but who is like a Dickensian orphan, where it's like, yeah, sure, you'll do labor for us, you'll do work. His fingers are probably small enough to clean, you know, the little, uh, I don't know, bullets or something like that. I don't know what the rivets. He can. He's he also clean super the strong. Oh yeah, yeah. Paz, I was going to say uh, Pazu has Hulk strength. Yeah, Pazu is inhumanly yeah. strong. <laughs> he um, so he, comes he crashes through that explodes their shirts off. So <laughs> yeah, he crashes through all that solid brickwork. Like he goes through <laughs> the pavement and into the into, into the basement of his house. Yeah, like, like, it's it it's it it is it is like 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 that Hulk like going through through the roof of yeah. a factory. I mean that that's the thing. It's like when Basically. when Patsu walks off the roof carrying the amulet and lands in his own basement. Like it's a good thing, but it's not a good thing because he would have fallen to his death far below. It's because if he had fallen and built up velocity, he probably would have cracked the town in half. So it's a good thing that he stopped when he did, really. But yeah, no, it's very much that kind of Dickensian attitude to child labor where he's working in the mines. He's bringing up the miners. And the miners are saying the veins that we're mining, and despite the fact they seem to be hauling coal, they're like silver. There's no silver. There's not even any tin. We may have to start sort of breaking out into these. And you have this kind of sense of a community that is very much dying, really. It's kind of on the verge of collapse, which is, again, kind of interesting. It kind of taps into this idea you know, Maizaki's kind of fascination with the relationship between man and nature, because you have this idea of the mining community going into the ground and trying to bring something good out of it, but being unable to do so. Yeah, and it, like, it's a funny one as well, because the idea of um, kids gr doing grown-up stuff is very kind of um, central to a lot of um, children's television and, and movies, like... I guess like Tintin is uh, fifteen, but he's like running around with a gun, and he, he, he like his parents are nowhere to be seen. Um, <laughs> and parents, and he, yeah, exactly. And th 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 that's the kind of the, the fun of these um, of these sorts of um, stories. Yeah, that that that, and and it's it's it it's it's being unsupervised that is very exciting for children and very worrying to grown-ups. Like, I mean, there was, there was, there was a story about the, I think the, yeah, I think the, the first couple of episodes of the monkeys, they had a grown-up there. Like, <laughs> like a, a 60s guy in, in like a suit and tie and stuff. And he was like, Oh, you crazy monkeys. Um, because they, they, the studio felt like they needed to have some somebody who wasn't a beatnik. <laughs> like, Even to, though they're to... all in like their mid-twenties at that point? Right, yeah. But this yeah, is TV yeah, casting, were... Graham. They're meant to be like 15. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's worth noting that, that Patsu here is played by in the American dub by James Vanderbeek. Yes, who's in his 20s? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, James Vanderbeek was like 46 when he did <laughs> Dawson's Creek, right? No, he wasn't. <laughs> I mean, Anna um, Paquin's playing uh, Shizu, which is interesting. Cheetah. Yeah. Cheetah. Cheetah. Me. Cheetah. By the way, before we... Okay. 
let's talk about the, the vague European influences on this, right? Because there's a couple of things to, to note with regard, regard. And it's entirely right. Huge influence of that kind of Dickensian sort of like street urchin kind of storytelling. And particularly with the idea of no parents being found. And again, that's something that's very common to even like superhero stories where you have Bruce Wayne as an orphan, um, Peter Parker as an orphan. You know, the X-Men hang out with a creepy bald dude who lets them do whatever they want. It's this kind of sense of being a kid and being able to do whatever the hell you want whenever the hell you want. But it's worth noting that... Um, the film takes its kind of influences from Europe. Ghibli itself was actually named for an Italian fighter plane um, and also from a breeze that blows from the desert, from the Sahara Desert as well. But again, you have that sense of Maizaki drawing from kind of his influences, his European influences. Um, the design of it uh, is inspired, obviously. And again, this is one of those differences between the sub and the dub. The sub actually specifically mentions Gulliver's Travels. Um, the dub doesn't. So when... Um, so when... Uh, Patsu picks up the book in the dub it sounds like he's talking about his father's like diary but if you read the subtitles it's very much no no this is a copy of Gulliver's Tales by Jonathan Swift and actually this is this is where the name Laputa comes from because Laputa was a floating city um in Jonathan Swift's uh, Gulliver's Travels notably one of the more controversial elements of the book in fact it's been omitted from several editions of it subsequently because apparently it was one big gigantic screw you to Isaac Newton um, because it's basically a society of scientists uh, that consists of build that build this city um, and hover over the rest of humanity and throw rocks down on people whom they disagree with <laughs> and even in the story of jo no it gets it somehow gets even better than that in Gulliver's Travels when cities refuse to bow down to Laputa um, they hover the city over the city that refuses to surrender and then lower it down on top of them, crushing the city wow. that refuses to bow beneath they them. Just like squat on top of this. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah. Um, and apparently, like you, you've had people, like you've had annotated versions of Gulliver's Travels that have been, this is a bit much, isn't it? What did Isaac <laughs> Newton ever do to Jonathan Swift to tick him off that much? Um, it's notable that the name Laputa is Spanish for the whore or the bitch. Yeah. Oh no. Hence the yeah. title change. Yes, exactly, Brie. That's that's exactly it. Maizaki, when he named the story Laputa Castle in the Sky, did not realize that in Spanish it translated as the horror or the bitch. That's why Laputa was marketed in Japan as Laputa, marketed in a lot of Europe as Laputa, but crucially not in Spain or Portugal, and not marketed in America, where 10% of the population speaks Spanish as a primary language. It was sold as Castle in the Sky instead. There's another example of kind of translation or, or romanticization or um, of the language or names going on with Sheeta. The name Sheeta, as it's spelt, and does Breed know what this is? I, I get the sense looking at Breed's face, she knows what this is. No, but if go you were, on. if you were to tr translate Sheeta. Uh, like phonetically and kind of linguistically from the Japanese character and the name that's implied, it would be S H I T A. And for obvious reasons, the, the marketing team decided, no, no, we, we, we can't quite go with uh, calling our lead character Shita. So it's, she's going to be Shita. That's, that's what we're going to change it to as well. Hmm. Um, but uh, in terms of kind of influence as well, it's worth noting that uh, there's an, actually a city um, in Italy called Civita di Bagnoraggia. And I apologize for that. 
Um, that's a terrible pronunciation of it, but you'll see it in the show notes. It is actually known as the city in the sky, the, ca- the castle in the sky, the castle in the clouds, because it's so high on the mountains that when the fog rolls over, it actually seems to be floating in the clouds. And that has, be- that has become a tourist hotspot after because of the success of Castle in the Sky in China, where it's been estimated that uh, since the release of the film in China, there have been... Uh, there were 40,000 visitors in 2013, but by 2017, that number had grown to 850,000 tourists. Um, it had grown to 1 million tourists in 2018, of which 20% of those came from China. And interestingly enough, that was one of the hotspots, again, to bring it back to, to a modern context, of the coronavirus outbreak uh, in Italy, actually, because of that overlap that existed between the two. Because both Italy and China are countries that were highly affected by the coronavirus, so you had this kind of confluence of factors and leading to kind of massive um, sort of infect- infection among them. But it's a shame, because that entire city apparently thrives based off that tourism that is driven by the film that inspired it, uh, which is kind of striking as well. But it's very, very clear when you watch the film that Maizaki is kind of drawing as much from European influences and context as he is from Japanese. And it's notable at the end where you have the big speech about like what Laputa is. Not only is it lifted from Jonathan, you know, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, it's also the one that destroyed the city that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah as well from the Christian Bible. So does that mean that we live... That 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 Laputa is based on our planet. It's in the far future. No, um, it's actually set in eighteen sixty-eight. No, it's just because Sodom and Gomorrah like is our Earth. Yes, ages ago, like millennia ago. Yeah, so like Laputa's Laputa's been floating for generations, but it's actually eighteen sixty-eight because you see the picture, the picture uh, that was taken of it in the bottom corner. You can read the the numbers. Uh. 1868 7 so the that picture was taken in july 1868 so you're saying this is a thing that's set in the past yes this is a historical film yes okay (laughs) (laughs) sorry breed um sorry but yeah no but you you have the sense of maizaki being kind of influenced very much by western kind of storytelling western tropes in terms of how he's constructing it but it is throughout a very maizaki film and again this thing we talk about nausicaa this kind of taps into a lot of the same themes and ideas, in particular, like that idea of man's relationship to nature um, is a huge part of it as well. Yeah, there's there's a lot of kind of overlap, like you see in in um, there's a lot of kind of symbiosis between um, man and um, technology, and and the, the, are, are 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 between kind of um, technology kind of feels very um, organic in in this like the the um the there's a lot of machines with kind of um with uh with wings yeah that 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 that's like like they um flap like insects wings um there's there's a lot of kind of um that same sort of um even even the the um the 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 robots they feel very much um, uh, alive. Yeah, because or... they, they move very fluidly. Yeah. Yeah. Their arms and I, I, aren't I, like I, joined at the the elbow. They they move all over and kind of like almost you know like wiggly wavy arm mans. Kind of like, sort of like <laughs> exactly. I feel I feel like um, um, Miyazaki isn't anti technology. I I feel like. Um, Miyazaki kind of 
um, tends to uh, like imbue soul in 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 machines, and that and that the evil evil doesn't come from kind of from the potential that these uh, machines create. It's it's it comes from people's um, uh, like intentions, you know. That's um, that they that 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 people that people dream of creating these machines in in order to do evil, but that the, that if the machines themselves could choose, that they would that they would look after um, the world, which is nice. Yeah, because that's one of the interesting things about it is that again, and this is one of the things where it's slightly more complicated. As much as I might, you know, describe it almost dismissively as a film that seems aimed at a younger demographic than most Ghibli films, or than you know the the classic ones, or than Nausicaa was, there is something kind of interesting in the way that it approaches this theme of technology and this theme of kind of uh, you know power mainly, because throughout Castle in the Sky. It's not a sense of power is inherently bad or technology is inherently bad. Instead, there's this argument about utility. It's about how you use these things can be for good or for evil. And like how you actually apply power is good and evil. And the idea that they don't exist independently of one another. It's not as simple as a clear dichotomy. And you have that sequence where even, um, you know, Sheeta herself talks about learning spells from her grandmother. And she says, you know, I learned the levitation spell. I learned a couple of smaller spells, but I also had to learn a spell of great destruction. And it was the spell of great destruction that gave the good spells power. I had to learn bad ones so that the good ones would have power. And you have that happen throughout as well, where you have the first robot that's introduced. And again, the robot's kind of an interesting creature because it reminds me of the god warrior from um, Nausicaa as well. But also the way in which it's shot looks like an angel. It reminds, and again, this is a weird thing to go back to, but the Simpsons, you know that Simpsons episode where they find the angel <laughs> It looks a lot like that because again, as Andrew said, you have the arms, but even before you know their wings, they have spikes on them. So they look like they're kind of wings almost. It looks like a fossil of an angel falling to earth. And again, you have that wonderful sequence that, that's shot like the, that's sort of, you know, animated like the opening scene, the cross hatching on it to make it look like an illustration from an old book where you have that kind of effect of an angel falling to earth, almost like Lucifer being cast down from heaven. And it becomes this kind of almost supernatural kind of entity. It's almost like it's not technology at all. It's almost as magical as the spells or incantations that Sheeta uses to kind of talk to it. But you have that sequence, which is, you know, it's not quite as graphic as the God Warrior sequences in Nausicaa, or even like later on, the stuff that we talked about when we talked about Neon Genesis Evangelion. But it's quite full on for a children's film. It's very much like hellfire and brimstone. There's like red molten lava. There's fire burning. There's castles collapsing. There's people dying. There's an entire city seeming to collapse into smoke, rubble, ruin, screams and terror. All as a result of this single kind of like robot that happened to fall from the sky and wake up. But then the next time you see a robot... It's as Andrew said, it's almost become kind of, it's almost synthesized itself with nature. It's become one with nature. And again, you have this sense like with Laputa itself, with the floating city, the castle in the sky, this sense of like something beautiful when nature and humanity kind of coexist. It's not a binary. It's not like you have to have one or the other. It's that you can have both of them and they can almost exist together. It's been pointed out that the sequence where... They use the weapon of mass destruction from the castle and they fire it into the sea and you get this mushroom cloud effect. That almost contrasts with the gigantic world tree at the center of the city, which is like itself. It's like a mushroom cloud. It's shaped like a mushroom cloud. It's just a green mushroom cloud. 
and those roots that kind of go down into the earth, and you have that sequence where they go down into the bowels of the city, into the heart of its power. And the villain's like, what are these roots doing here? There's no need for these roots to be here. But if you watch, those roots are how Sheeta and how Patsu kind of navigate the city. That's how they get to where they need to be. That's why Patsu doesn't fall to his death, for example. So many that's times. How they he should have fallen to his death so many times. <laughs> yeah. But again, you, He's you a have platformer. this sense... <laughs> he He's is very much Drake. a video game effect. Yeah, it's very much a video game effect. He's got really strong grip. Mario's uh, got nothing hands. on him. And there's those blocks that move around. It feels very platforming. Oh, as well. what I found was like in the third act, like just the body count got ridiculous at one point when Mark Hamill's <laughs> character said to his two go- two goons, "You wait here on your royalty can go ahead," and then you just see them dying as everything around them, all the blocks and everything, are shifting, and they're desperately trying to hold on. And then you have uh, Jim Cummings' uh, general character. And all his soldiers fall to their death, as <laughs> as like Mark Hamill's guys going, "Ha ha, screw all of you!" And then you just see them all drop. By the way, there's it a was... really great difference between the dub and the sub in that one. Oh, where, I, uh, yeah. I I feel like I I, I know this. I I yeah. love I love this line. What? Yeah. This, uh, the Japanese sub has the line Andrew Q. I grow tired of your stupid face. <laughs> No, I did not say that in the dub. Yeah, whereas the actual dub version is much more generic with I've heard enough from you. Um, yeah, the stupid <laughs> face is way more petty and funny. Um, but yeah, like, it, it is a surprise. Dino! <laughs> <laughs> and your stupid face, too. Um, yeah. Sort of like the Wicked and Witch. Daddy. Went- <laughs> yeah. But, and again, this is one of the things where there is that kind of weird dissonance between the movie being really kid-friendly, but also absurdly violent, where yeah. you have the opening scene with the pirates, where the pirates do this raid on the airship, which is, again, like a Zeppelin. It's kind of, again, you see that European influence there as well. But again, you have the sequence where <laughs> the, 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 they're being raided, and they're like, mayday, 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 emergency, and they break out the railgun and start, <laughs> like, firing it at the pirates, Right. But no, that's that's not the worst part. Because the pirates are good guys in this animated film, the pirates are wandering around with these gigantic hand cannons, but they only shoot tear gas. And it's great because you don't realize that the pirates are good guys until you get to know Dola later on. So when you're watching the sequence at the start, there's this really strange dissonance where those dastardly pirates and their non-lethal method of boarding versus <laughs> like the soldiers... And gentlemen who haven't identified themselves as government agents, but have revolvers firing randomly in the hallway. And it kind of happens throughout. Like there's, even at the end, like you mentioned that sequence at the end where the body count does get absurd. And you get like, is it Mushku, Colonel Mushku, who proves himself like so ridiculously evil that he kills a whole army of people who are already evil. So, you know, he's even more evil than they are. Oh, but, like, Muska. Even while... Oh, Muska. Even then you have, you know, the sequence where, where Patsu pops up between the legs of Dola in a sequence which is not at all suggestive at all. He but became she, a man oh, that day. Is this when he becomes a man? Yeah. Yes. yes. We're going to talk about those. There's probably there's quite a lot to unpack there, I think. What but I find funny is sequ- you see a picture of Dola when she was younger and like, huh, all right. Oh, where? Oh, in her bedroom. <laughs> Andrew's like in her bedroom. There is literally a portrait of a like a life-size portrait of her as a young woman, and she looks 
exactly the same, except like she's like just 20, 30 years younger. She does not look exactly the same. But she's like the same build. So she like she looks like a really hot, like mix like 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 uh, exactly. muscular she does woman. Not look exactly fine, the same. fine, but she like she looks great. <laughs> I'm sorry, I went off on a weird tangent there. No, I mean we'll, we'll we'll circle back around. Actually, there is a lot to unpack there, which we probably will circle back around to. Um, but like, just just in terms of of that stuff, though, like at the climax of the film, you have the sequence where she kind of like lowers her leg and shakes out this giant cannon. So, like at the climax of the film, Patsu is running around with this giant like alien style blaster on the on his back. It's the BFG. Even it just fires tear gas. Yeah, it's the BFG, but it only fires tear gas. It's completely useless. But except does it? To the point but wait, of hold on. Does it only fire tear gas? It causes it. It, it, it things explode. When it hits them. I think it's a grenade launcher. I think it's a grenade launcher too. Fitted, fitted with different types of grenades. Yeah. So you probably have like stun grenades and gas grenades, yeah. incendiary grenades. Yeah. EMP and there's grenades. Colonel Musku yeah. using, using a revolver like a sap. But yeah, no, but again, that's, that's the weird kind of sense of this being both a film for children, but also inc- surprisingly bloodthirsty and violent in places. And I mean, like, and they again, use Mark Hamill to his full degree, because this is, this came out in 1998, the dub version came out in 1998, so that's yeah. prime Batman. So he's, yeah. like, right up there using his prime, like, Joker uh, presence as he's, like, walking to, to Sheeta, <laughs> as she's running away with the crystal. Yeah. I mean, it's worth noting, actually, just before, uh, just on Hamill there, actually, because Hamill's talked about how he visited Japan when he was in high school, and he's actually a big fan of anime, and he's a big fan of kind of Japanese animated cinema. So to be part of that, part, and also to be part of, like, Ghibli in particular, was a huge, huge deal for him, actually. And he does he does good work. He's actually really, really good, because, again, one of the criticisms that you have of the kind of dubbing, and particularly, like, the Disney-era dubbing, is there's a tendency to go with celebrities rather than voiceover artists. And I think we've talked about this before, yeah. where you have these kind of actors who are recognizable rather than actors who are necessarily good at the craft of doing voice acting, because it's a different... It's a different well, their names are recognizable, but they might yeah. actually be that recognizable in in the dub. Like in this yeah. one, they got... Uh, Which they is got, weird. Like, I'm, I was happy about it. Uh, Jim Cummings is in it. He's the other general. Uh, he's, a, he's, he's Muska's competing uh, officer. And he's a great voice actor. Like Jim Cummings has done Goofy. Um, he's Winnie the Pooh. Uh, he's he, in the Lion he, King as well. He's one of the hyenas in the Lion King. Yeah, he's Ed, Ed. wasn't he? Uh, yeah. yeah, and he's a, and Jim Cummings is brilliant in in that role. Yeah, and again, like Hamill is an actor who is like you know he is a he is a screen actor, cinematic actor. But by nineteen ninety eight, as a result of Batman. He'd really kind of honed his craft as a voice actor. He is a really, really good voice actor. So I think that that stands the movie's credit. And like, I mean, we'll probably talk about dubs and subs in a moment, but like, I quite like Hamill's performance here. It would be one of the things that I missed when I watched the Japanese version. When I watched it in Japanese, I kind of missed that sense of you know maniacal, almost <laughs> well, literally cartoonishly evil. Why? What's 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 Muska like actually in the sub, like with his natural voice? He's got one of those really, really cool, deep Japanese voices. Oh, nice. I I quite enjoyed it. It's the voice that I put on when I'm when I'm speaking Japanese. <laughs> um, and it's it's um, and the, 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 is is that problematic or is that what you're meant to do when you're speaking another another language? Oh, you're meant to do, try to oh, do, try the do the accent, the right? Version of said we, language. Yeah. <laughs> We we have we have discussed this. I think we have. Yeah, yeah. 
every anime. But yeah, um, also quickly in terms of kind of dubbing and subbing, one of the several of the big differences about it. But in terms of music, um, and this is kind of interesting because Asachi's talked about this: the difference between scoring for a Japanese film uh, or a Japanese audience and scoring for an American audience is that Japanese audiences are less scared of silence in their films, particularly in animated films. And like Andrew will probably notice this. There's a sequence uh, where Patsu is like riding through the air into Laputa, kind of when he's in the kite. And that sequence plays in the Japanese version as something very similar to the Stargate sequence from 2001 A Space Odyssey, where it's very silent and you're focused on his eyes and there's kind of this deathly kind of like just vacuum there. Whereas in the American version, you get this rising heroic theme playing in the background. So it's very much like, look at something's happening and it's very, very important. And uh, Hisachi himself has talked about how, like, one of the things is that on American um, when on American recordings, American music or music for American films, it's very much, it dictates, it's very much about dictating audience response. So it's very much almost like Pavlovian. You see this creature on screen, you want a bit of music that sounds like this creature. This character has a theme, you want to hear that theme whenever the character's on screen. Whenever a big moment happens, you want the orchestra to kick in in full blast so that they, you know, the audience knows that it should be paying attention to what's happening. Whereas Japanese audiences tend to be more about building ambience and about building mood. And I think the score, the synth score that's been provided for the original version has been likened to a video game score in terms of being kind of like built around these themes. But they tend to be more about establishing mood than kind of like reflecting what's happening on screen. And actually, listeners, if you want to try and experiment at home when you're watching the film and you want to get a difference between the Japanese uh, audio and the American audio, and you can do this with Netflix as you're listening to as you're listening or watching the film. Watch the opening credit sequence. Wait until the sequence where Sheeta is falling through the sky at the very end of it. It's the sequence. It's a picture with the clouds, and then you can see the silhouette kind of falling down. And then you get a close up on her, and her amulet kind of lights up, and there's a blue field that envelopes her, and she starts, you know, floating rather than falling dramatically. If you watch the Japanese version of that, the music changes on the cut. So it's the moment when you cut to that close-up of her and her amulet starts glowing and you get this theme that just sort of starts playing and it's very level-headed and it's very much like, well, this is a picture of a woman falling and then the feel envelopes her and it, it feels like just part of the scene. But if you rewind 30 seconds, switch the American audio, what you get is, as soon as you cut to her, the music starts building. You can feel momentum building. The, the blue glow, the sound starts mounting. And then the blue field envelopes her and boom. The entire orchestra kicks into high gear and it's this huge triumphant moment. And if you want to get a sense of the difference between how Hisachi scores for Japanese audiences and how Hisachi scores for American audiences. That sequence is a prime example and well worth checking out. If you, It would only take a minute if you're watching it on Netflix. It's very worth seeking out. Uh, but in terms of other stuff that's kind of different about the dub and, and what I noticed, which is quite striking, two things. Uh, one of which is going to dovetail nicely into Graham's observation earlier about how hot Dola is. So we're going to circle back to that one. 
Uh, but the first one that I noticed is that the American one is very much kind of very handholdy. It's very much like you have characters, a lot of saying what's happening on screen. It's very, And again, this is probably a Disney thing where it's aimed at younger kids. So you have that sequence, that wonderful sequence where the two guys square off in the Welsh mining town and they both burst their shirts. And like in the Japanese dub, the bursting of the shirts just happens. It's hilarious. And then it happens again and it's more hilarious. But in the american dub in the dub you have them saying do the shirt thing yeah burst your shirt um which kind of almost ruins the joke by telling yeah, you what's going they, to happen yeah, and then they go oh yeah you think that's all you can do watch this and yeah yeah it's not there's, necessary no there's a lot of that in there and again it feels very much like it's kind of like surplus audio design it feels you know like it's very much overcompensating for you know what was maybe a minimalist audio track but yeah let's get back to the horniness um because this is one of the big differences that Leave exists between... <laughs> and, uh, Graham, I'm not I'm not singling you out. One of the big differences Shit, that exists... I think I exists... myself out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one of the big differences that exists between the American version and the Japanese version um, is that the American version is just a tiny bit less horny than the Japanese version. And Wait, a little bit Japanese less... Japanese version's <laughs> hornier? Yeah. They're, they're, they're attracted to Shita... They're attracted oh, to Sheeta. They're attracted to Sheeta in the in the dub. No, yes. well, they are in the dub in, as well. But it's, I feel like it's 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 in spite of her being a child and because she is like their mom. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Breed, breed. Actually, breed, breed. You say yeah. this. You pointed yeah. this out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, their mother did literally just tell them, "You find a nice girl just like me," and then she arrives. And she literally says, "Oh, you remind me just of me when I was younger." Yeah. Yeah. It's and then you see a picture of her, and you're just, like, "No, you're better." But it's a very similar vibe. The moment, the moment where they really start getting uh, uncomfortably attracted. That to kitchen the child, scene, like really uncomfortably attracted. And again, like before but, that. Yeah, but and again, Graham. In, uh, no, in... yeah, but just Graham. Graham, you didn't watch the subs. Like no. you, you watch the dub version. The dub yeah. version downplays this. Like okay. that sequence, in, that sequence in the kitchen is in the American dub because there's no way to write around it. There's, no, there's literally not. that entire purpose of that scene is for those men to perv on that young girl. Like in the dub, up until that point, there's a little bit of it, but they manage to edge it out with jokes about how much these boys love dessert. Like in the dub, that sequence where they're talking about Sheeta and they're talking about, can you make dessert? Can you make pudding? Oh, I, I I really love pudding. Can you make the little frosting on top? In the sub, they are not talking about dessert and pudding. To make this absolutely clear, just so we're obvious, just so we're we're transparently clear. Um, say what they're so, yeah. talking about. It, it it makes it worse when you don't when you don't say what they're saying. <laughs> they're talking about how excited they are to have Sheeta joining them. And how much they want Sheeta's attention. And how much they want Sheeta to know that if she wants to cry or talk, she can talk to them. That's, <laughs> you know, they're there for her. They want her to know that. Um, Lovely. And, and there are bits of that in the dub, but it's very, very much toned down. But yeah, to get to what Andrew was saying, the moment at which, it, particularly in the subversion, at which the boys realize that they are uncomfortably attracted to a preteen girl, and by the way, again, another difference between the sub and the dub. The dub casts James Vanderbeek and Anna Paquin in the lead roles, which has the effect of like vocally aging the characters up significantly. So Sheeta and, you know, 
Patsu sound she, like they're... Anna Paquin sounds quite young, actually, as Sheeta, I thought. Trust me, listening to the dub, listening to the subtitle oh, no. version, she sounds... Andrew, what age would you guess Sheeta is from your version of the film? There is... There, there... <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely very young sounding. I mean, I mean, there is, there is, there is, isn't there a cultural thing in in um, in Japan anyway of 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 um, kind of um, grown grown women um, uh, tr- uh, doing doing a kind of a. Um, Baby voice type thing, perhaps, or infantilization yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of thing, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. It's exactly. worrying that at this point of the podcast, Andrew seems to have magically appeared with a glass of white wine. <laughs> Where did that come from? <laughs> that was always there. Um, it's always been there. No, it's not always been there. She had water a minute ago. Welcome back to the Shardcast. Hey, it's, it's, listen, listen, it's eight o'clock on a Thursday night. Let's, let's have some Pass fun. Pass the watershed. Pass the watershed. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, listening to the, the Japanese audio and listening to the American audio, there's a very clear difference in age between Patsu and Shita between the two films. Patsu and Shita seem very much like kids. I would believe they're, you know, about 10 years old watching the Japanese version. Watching the dub version, I'd say they're closer to 14, maybe 15. Yeah, and, yeah, that's what yeah. I would believe. Yeah. Yeah. But like saying 10 then for Patsu even makes it more terrifying his strength. Yeah, it also makes the way in which the, the characters react around Shita even creepier. Um, not yeah, that it is but I don't want to focus on creepiness. <laughs> this is a fun film. I don't want to focus I, on I, that. I, yeah, I, I think... Um... I think they're they're more excited because um, she's like um, their mother. I think. Yeah. Also, maybe she's a female, and she and they're and also maybe she's not their mother because it seems like this. It seems like this <laughs> this 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 crew has only ever seen her the, the 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 captain. They've never seen another female. <laughs> so she's like, oh look, another woman, and it's not our mom. Um, but Graham, oh, Graham, it's worth noting the point at which they become like really into her is the moment after which Dola has dressed her in her own hand-me-down clothes. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! She, oh my God! When they she's all strolling looked across, at her. Yeah, that's the moment where they have this oh, kind of epiphany, I it was just and they're because like, they're like, "Huh? No, I kind oh, of." No. Felt that. Oh no! Yeah, oh, no. yeah, no. It's very even much, the animation so, yeah. alone indicates that. Yeah, and it's it's. It's very strange watching the film, and it's something again with the dub. I was like, "This is a little bit odd," and then when I watched the sub, I was like, "What the hell is going yeah, on?" Yeah, because in the dub, it just it just come, kind of comes out of nowhere. They look at her, and then they look back. There's no there's no flushing of the cheeks or anything to indicate that oh, they're interested. There's just they just look at her and then they just look back. But if you're building up on other things, yeah, that scene plays out a lot differently. I'd be surprised if if Miyazaki hasn't spoken very candidly about all of this. Well, we talked about it in Nausicaa. <laughs> like he loves boobs. In, yeah, in Nausicaa, it's like... Can I can I talk just a little bit more about some boobs? It's like <laughs> oh, we only have so three the question minutes. was about the deficit. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, but it is worth noting, actually... Two things on that. Yes, we do get the repeat of the giant bosom sequence at the end. Where, yeah, she, um, she's gonna, she almost kills her that end scene. It was concerning. We were concerned. I love that, the, by the way, they're led down by treasure. Like, it's like, we can't take the planes any higher to rescue Patsu and Sheeta. And, like, you don't realize until afterwards, it's like, oh, by the way, the reason why we can't do that is because we're loaded with gold. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
because the lives of these kids are not worth our precious, precious gold. Well, to be fair, uh, but, uh, what is it? Doa's first line in the film is, oh no, my, 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 my crystal. As Cheetah is falling to her supposed death. Like, she's yeah. not saying, oh no, the girl. She's going, oh no, the crystal. So, so, so when, when someone says, oh, it looks like they're the bad guys, like, I believe that. Start as you mean to go on. And I kind yeah. of do like that, like, the film is willing to make Dola grotesque, like, actually grotesque repeatedly. She has the kind of, like, the, the one or two teeth in her lip that you have, which is kind of there. But even the sequence where she, you know, where Patsu comes home and finds her waiting for him, which is another one of those great, we need to get to another action sequence quickly. So let's just, I don't know, have the pirates abduct him and also, take him on an adventure. it's another great moment of Ghibli food. Yes. Although, Ghibli although there is some is food waste. Food. Yes, it is. Oh. It, 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 it's so incredible. I wanted that ham. Like. <laughs> the way in which she bites it, like she's tearing the top off of something. Yeah, yeah it looks like she's taking like... off, like, uh, like I, I, I don't even know. It's not meat, because if it was meat, it, like, it wouldn't come off so, like, so slick and so... It's almost like not, not even bread, because even bread would have issue. There's just, there's, there's, there's a type of food that when I saw it, I was like, it just looks like almost velvet. Like it almost looks, it comes off so clean and you know it tastes good. And there's the eggs. And I don't even like eggs, but the eggs always look great. <laughs> it's perfect food as well. Like the, the, it's, yeah. it's like, because you, 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 you can cut it at any point and then further cut it into like more segments and there'll be an equal amount of like uh, fat. On, e on, on each um, slice as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. You look very I'm, wistful I'm... right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was so very... see what would go really well with this wine. I was very upset when the, when the table was knocked over. It was oh, such yeah. a waste. Yeah. Well, again, 250 trope food waste. Yeah. Very... Also, another thing about Hayao Miyazaki and his films, there's an old crone. You know, there's always an old crone in one of these films. Yeah, and yeah. this one's an action one. An like, action very one. Much kind of, action crone. Yeah, action crone. And Horace Leachman is actually quite good in the dub. I think she's very, very yeah. good. Oh, she's great. She Like, the thing is, that's another thing. She's another actor like Jim Cummings. She's there, I think, and Mark Hamill. She's there for her performance and not as a name because she's a great comedic actor. Like, she is wonderful. And she brings that performance, like, to that character. She brings that character to life. And you get a kind of a bit more of a kind of an edge to her. Again, this is the kind of thing where we talk about the movie, like as much as it is kind of a family film, it's not quite a Disney film, that sort of thing. It has a bit more edge to it. Where she's introduced, her introductory moment is her staring down at an airship and cackling while grinning like the yeah. Joker. Yeah. Um, it's very much kind of an even threat. And I mean, the film does soften her and kind of turns this almost into a bit of a joke where she's eavesdropping and she just like, Oh, Dola's a soft touch. And Patsy's like, yeah, sure, she said she'd kill me, but I'm fairly sure she'll let me go. And, you know, sort of like, it's almost like played as a joke, but there is a sense of, you get a sense that Dola has killed people. Oh, yeah. 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 Like, I have no, I have no qualms. Like, again, I return you to her first words in the film. <laughs> oh, no, my crystal. As a little girl falls to her death. Maybe she knows, um... The power of the crystal, and no. she knows that uh, that she's going to float. No, she does. Like later on, where Patsu and where Shita fall, like the the kids are like, "Oh no, they're lost!" And she's like, "No, wait!" And then she shows them what the crystal can do. So I suspect she probably has some idea what the crystal's capable of. 
Um, again, like, there's a question of what does she want the crystal for? You know, I mean... The treasures again, of Laputa, I imagine? Yeah, but surely, again, the crystal will guide you there as well, I suppose. I suppose the crystal will guide you there. You don't need to know that it flies. But you do need to know that it's mystical. Yeah, you also need to know the spell that activates it. Oh, sorry. Sorry, no, I, I was just thinking, if she if she had gotten the crystal, presumably she would have just sold it to those military guys. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is, you need a, you need a specific <laughs> spell to actually cast, to, for it to actually turn into a homing beacon. beacon. And then also the whole thing about like the, the reveal of Mark ha- of Muska turning out to be a, a, another descendant of Laputa. Did he never get any spells? Yeah, again, that's one of those things that feels like it's like a plot development where it's like, well, we need we like we need some stuff to happen. So he's a secret relative. And by the way, there was a whole other secret family. So we might as well just kind of bring him into it. Why not? We're going to go to climax. But anyway. it does very much lend itself to um, he really doesn't uh, respect his roots. But uh, uh, no, 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 what? Uh, no, um, actually, as a factual yeah, thing, though, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's a thematic point. It's a major... And again, literally, like, going in, he also doesn't respect nature as well. He doesn't understand the balance between mankind and nature and that sort of stuff. And again, that's a, that's the Maizaki theme, where Maizaki, you know, as much as he's a pessimist about human nature, he's generally positive about kids, but he generally believes, genuinely believes, that it is possible for mankind to live in communion with nature. Um, and the villains of his film typically end up being people who don't who deny that who refute that who seek to exploit or seek to harness nature again it's notable when you get to like the castle in the sky it's been overrun by greenery but like the idea of even inside and outside no longer exists when sheeta and patsu are walking through the eponymous castle in the sky they can't see the walls from the inside there are no walls there is no barrier between inside and outside the robots have like been folded into the scenery they're like embedded in the roots of the tree one of them has like planted itself in the ground like a tree another one's covered with moss and has those adorable fox squirrels running around <laughs> ah tato his legacy lives on <laughs> don't leave me <laughs> uh, andrew quick question do you think the fox squirrels in Lapita castle in the sky are living their best lives yeah 100 <laughs> percent Especially by the end of the film. Yeah, for all, for all they know. <laughs> <laughs> um, they are not aware of the alternative. Yeah. What? I may point out that uh, at the destruction of the city, before it was clear that only the bottom part was going, my concern was for the animals. Not and for the people. Graham turned to me and go, literally hundreds of people are dying. I was like, but, but the squirrels. But to be fair, the people who are dying are the military who want to harness it as a weapon. Exactly. The secret agents who are helping Mushku. And even the pirates who just want to pilfer it. Who just want to, like, raid its treasury. I mean, you know, I not not to say that the loss of a single human life isn't a tragedy. But it's like... But, but you're saying those fox squ- But the yeah. fox squirrels but those fox safe. squirrels never did anything like that, Graham. They never tried to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. They didn't. It is worth noting, by the way, again, there's uh, worth noting one of these lines I've actually quite like from louis mumford's story of utopia written in 1922 our most important task at the present moment is to build castles in the sky he's describing the concept of utopia and again i part of me wonders if myzaki is kind of getting at that if the idea of lupita the castle in the sky is that it is an ideal towards which mankind might strive but towards which they are never worthy 
Well, uh, yeah, because I mean, at the end of the film, it's in the atmosphere. Nothing can reach it. Like again and again, you have this theme of like it was built, it floated up to the heavens, but for some reason, it was abandoned. the The inhabitants retreated back down to earth. They decided they weren't worthy of the city, or something happened in the city that forced them out. It's never really explained why the city's abandoned. Now, Mushku can't can't fathom why you would abandon that power. Sheeta explains that they that they said that uh, they. They just they understood that they needed to be on the ground and that the castle could just stay where it needed to be, which was in the sky. But then you also have this weird imagery of there's a section of the of the city that is underwater. Now, is that just for the nature? Is that just for the sea life? Sorry, I said sea life. The the, the fishes and the marine the marine life of um, uh, uh, uh Laputa. Laputa, or is that was that an accident that happened while the place was le- was left barren by uh, no pe- no humans? That's intended to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Is this what I'm saying? Is is this secretly a pandemic film? And this is our future. And the dolphins that are now in Venice have now mm. actually gone to Laputa. And that's what's going on. I'm just trying to make it all come back together, guys. No, I, I think it's very much like an example of nature reclaiming. And again, I think you're right in terms of pandemics. Again, you've, you've seen that, like, the meme that has been, like, you know, sort of done to death, which is, wow, no humans around. Nature has begun to return to normal. And it's like, you know, wow, no humans around. And Thanos took has a managed to restore, yeah, t- Titan to its former glory. But yeah, this kind of sense of, like, the idea that where humans aren't, nature is kind of moving back to fill the void and it's recovering as kind of clambering back to the state in which it was. There is actually like in the film itself an unironic sense of that, a sense that like without human beings around, nature has been allowed to kind of overrun, you know, the castle in the sky. But that's not a bad thing at all. In fact, it's it's made it safer. It's made it sturdier. Like when the castle falls apart, the roots still stand. And again, the roots are how Patsu and how sort of Sheeta are able to survive because they're in the roots of this gigantic tree. So there's very much a sense in which that's a good thing. And again, you mentioned the idea that Sheeta mentioned of like abandoning the city in order to go back to the ground, literally to put roots down. That's what they're doing. Humanity were trying to put roots down. They realized that they needed to remain rooted. And again, you have that contrast between you know, the miners um, who are very much operating in these caves underground and, you know, the people who are trying to seize control, the military, who are trying to seize control of the air, who are trying to seize uh, Laputa and trying to take control of it and harness it as a weapon. Did Lewis Mumford also inspire um, Grover Washington? <laughs> Just the two of us. <laughs> the castle's in the sky. Just the two of us. Just you and I. No, you can't sing anymore, otherwise copyright infringement. (laughs) (laughs) We're allowed only seven bars. (laughs) But no, no, it it turns out that, like, again, I I think there is something to that. That sense of, like, the Lupita existing as an ideal to strive towards. And, like, a sense in which the moment that it becomes real, it becomes horrific. Because it's very much like it's romantic when you look at the picture that was taken by Patsu's father. You know, the shot of it in the clouds. That's absolutely beautiful. And it looks stunning and it's magical. And again, there's this sense of it almost being unreachable up there. It's almost like a fantasy. It's something in imagination, something to strive towards. And again, you have that sense in like Maizaki's work of kind of flight being freeing and liberating and magical. Something that connects you with the sky, something that lifts you up higher. 
You know, and again, you, you can see that throughout his work, right? Through, through the wind rises, you know, as well. Like you have this kind of sense in which flight should be liberating and magical and something that puts you in touch with nature because you're no longer tethered to the ground. But again, even here, you have that irony of that freedom becoming tied with destruction. You know, in, in The Wind Also Rises, you have that sort of sequence with the, you know, where the planes are built become warplanes. They become a means of destroying, of offering death from above rather than kind of like allowing humanity to soar. Here you have Lupita, which begins as, you know, sort of this thing to reach towards, this idea to strive towards, but then sort of becomes, you know, sort of like this weapon of mass destruction, this source of terror, this horror in the sky. And the idea that, you know, the best thing about a utopia is that you can never reach it. That, you know, at the end of the film, it's cast free of its earthly shackles. It wanders up there, and presumably it will be seen once or twice. Somebody will glimpse it through the clouds. It might live on in myths and legends. But generally speaking, it's unreachable and unattainable. And maybe that's what gives it value. It's a goal to aspire to rather than something to attain. Yeah. I think there's something very kind of potent in that, in that idea. But uh, in terms of Lupita and Cast in the Sky, is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already? I really liked it. <laughs> <laughs> I just really enjoyed it. No, I enjoy watching. Yeah. I enjoy watching Ghibli films. There's a they're a constant source of um, enjoyment. It's nice to have some constances in life, and uh, Ghibli will always be one of those, and it'll always be a positive one. I think. It is worth noting, actually, sorry, just to, and not to bring it too far back to the discussion that we had about uh, the horniness Shita and Batsu as, as, yes, to the horniness, unfortunately. And what's interesting is that um, this was actually a point of discussion um, for the, for, in interviews with Maizaki, where Maizaki was it's, asked, It's like, great, Darren, that you say, is there anything that anybody else wants to talk about? Because I want to talk about how <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's bring it back to what's really important here um but it is worth noting that like again this sense of and again this is one of the things where it's been described as a cultural divide between american and japanese cinema where in american cinema and even in children's films and even in family films there's a sense in which you have a story that has a male lead and a female lead and the idea is that by the end of the narrative the male and the female lead will be paired up and they'll end up together and they'll live happily ever after together. And one of the interesting things we it made, and it's an argument about why Ghibli took so long to kind of like integrate into kind of American culture, why it didn't latch on immediately outside of particular niche circles, was that like it, Maizaki generally declines to, to follow through with that. And Japanese anime in particular tends to avoid doing that as well. It's been uh, according to, to what I've read. And Maizaki himself has said, you know, he's been asked, you know, would, do you think the characters should have kissed at the end? And he's like, no, that's just something you expect from mm -hmm. watching America. I actually pointed this out to Graham at one point that how incredibly refreshing it was, especially that moment where they land together on top of each other. And in a, in a more Western film, that's your moment where there's awkward blushing and, but they just burst out laughing in genuine joy and friendship. And it was really lovely to see. Well, to be fair, like they're supposedly supposed to be 10. So, so yeah, no, it, it absolutely is. And again, it's, it's notable we'll be talking next week. And again, this is why I brought it up. I thought this was a very nice segue for me. Very professional sort of podcasting <laughs> of a segue. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about uh, Howl's Moving Castle. Howl's Moving Castle is 
interesting in terms of Maizaki films because it's the rare example where Maizaki actually does that, where he actually pairs off his male and female leads. And it's one of the films that has been, first of all, embraced in the United States, along with Spirited Away. It's one of the most beloved Maizaki films in the States and was a big breakout hit there. Ironically, it's also one of the films that was apparently least convincing to Japanese critics. Uh, so you get a nice cultural divide there. I kind of like the idea that you can sort of see Maizaki and kind of his relationship to the American market in how willing he is to pair it's off. It's really the male funny and you say that but because this, sorry. and this um no. I don't know what point you think I'm making, but I'm making a different point. Um to go back to what you were saying about the Welsh influence, um I've always believed that Miyazaki's time in Wales had such an incredible effect on future films and Howl's Moving Castle is absolutely one of them because it is based on a story by a Welsh author um, who I'm quite fond of actually but um, yeah it's and it is very different but it's it, it creates that from a lot of folklore that's originally Welsh and maybe that does create the disconnect yeah, yeah. yeah I mean we'll, we'll be talking about that in a bit more depth when we get to it next week but I just sort of in terms of setting up or contrasting our two castles, I thought that was a nice sort of way of doing it. Absolutely. By the way, the the uh, the dub uh, for for next week's movie is uh, is Welsh. Um, <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, he is. He absolutely yeah. is. He's yeah. Welsh, it's a very Welsh, Welsh, Welsh born, although I believe he's English. But uh, yeah. yeah, born yeah. in Wales. And you can find out who that is next week or just by checking IMDb or Wikipedia <laughs> while listening to this podcast. Your choice, listeners. Um, Oh, I will note the the animation uh, is absolutely gorgeous, actually. Oh, um, but I mean, the only, the only time that you can bring that up in a Ghibli film is if it's not. That's fair. That's fair. But I feel like you know we may be giving it a bit of a harsh ride. We may have been like, well, you know, it's not as good as whatever or whatever. But the animation is breathtaking. It is absolutely. Um, oh yeah, it's breathtaking, gorgeous. especially when Laputa itself shows up. Yes, um, and I was thinking particularly, and it's funny that like Breed mentioned that sequence where the two of them fall on top of one another. But the sequence where, you know, she's like, oh, I can't, I can't untie it. And he picks her up and he carries her oh, yeah. to the edge. So, and you get that wonderful so... kind of sweeping shot. It's, it's so beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. And uh, again, worth noting, actually, in terms of weird influences and the influences where you don't expect Castle in the Sky to show up. Major influence on Avengers Age of Ultron. Uh, you can actually see that, <laughs> Sokovia. that the, the, ro the robot from Laputa is one of the creations in Tony Stark's lab. You can see him when Ultron makes his first appearance. Uh, you have the long distended arm from the Laputa robot, but you have the body and the head as well. Oh, wow. And obviously, Ultron. Yeah. and obviously as well, the climax of Age of Ultron hinges on a very... Gulliver's travels sort of take on the city of Laputa, <laughs> yeah. where you have Except a giant have a city floating in the robot. sky. Yeah, a giant city floating in the sky that decides to avenge itself upon the earth below. So that was a kind of a, a nice twist on that. But anyway, so what we ask at the end of every podcast is we ask our guests to recommend something for listeners. So something you're enjoying at the moment, something that gives you pleasure. It could be a book you've been reading, it's a film you've been watching, a podcast you've been listening to. Anything you're enjoying. It can be related to the film that we talked about. It can be completely unrelated. It can be something that maybe helps you get through quarantine. But to give Graham and Breed a bit of time to think about it, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Deadly. So um, something that I've mentioned on, I believe it was uh, Lady on Fire, um, but that I'll mention as well for uh, for Graham's benefit. He's probably already aware of it, but it's... Um, 
Eberron. It's a kind of a Dungeons and Dragons world, and it relates to this because it's kind of it's uh, steampunk, but um, it's that kind of combination of uh, you know magic and um, also like a certain amount of um, technology and airships and that sort of thing, which is um, which is very much kind of in the in in the same um, zone as um, Laputa. Uh, castle in the sky but it's um it's a it's it's enjoyable and it's there's there's the same kind of moral ambiguity i guess in it that that you have with the with the with <laughs> the pirates in this <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and the second thing i'll recommend is um based on um miyazaki's time in uh wales and witnessing the uh the miner strike i'd i'd recommend brastoff is a tremendous performance from uh, Pete Postlewaite. He's always great, um, but pe- people they should call him pe- Pete Postle great, eh? Hey, um, and this. yeah, it's a it's a it's a it's a Ewan McGregor uh, movie as well. It's from like nineteen ninety six. So um, yeah, hopefully you can check that out. I'm not sure where you can, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> go ahead and try. Um, it's probably one of those Channel Four movies, in fact. Um, yeah, Film Four. Film Four, yeah, yeah. So um, maybe maybe they have it on um, on um, all four or whatever you call it. And if listeners do want to watch Brass Off, you can find it streaming on Four. You can find it. You can rent it on Volta or iTunes in Ireland, and you can buy it on iTunes in Ireland if you want as well. So it is available from digital retailers. Is it on? Is it on Amazon UK as well? I think. Oh, is it? On Prime Video, maybe? Well, I have that. I'm not sure. Okay. Awesome. Graham, what would you recommend? Uh, well, I'm doing a lot of things because I have to keep my mind going. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm going to go insane. Um, so I'm doing a multi- multiple multitude of things. I listen to a lot of podcasts. Uh, one I particularly love is Critically Acclaimed. They're an American podcast that discuss film of all kind. Uh, they also do TV shows that uh, only lasted one season or less, uh, which is part of it very interesting podcast and um, i also have been building uh gumpla which are based off the the anime gundam uh sure okay. that, oh yeah uh which are based off the anime gundam if you've if the two of you probably know the tv shows that have come out of gundam they're about mechs piloted by people and in gumpla you are given the mechs and thank you breed you build them, and I'll <laughs> just, just can't just see. For, but just for the people at home, and by that I mean uh, Darren and Andrew. <laughs> uh, the the gum the Gundam I am showing you currently right now, uh, I built from scratch. Um, all the pieces are movable, articulated, and it was only twenty oh. euro, and it's from here in Ireland. Uh, Hobby Store is the name of the site, and it's abs- at Hobby Frontline, excuse me. And um, I've been doing that. I'm on my second one right now. They they take a couple hours to do, but they're they're just so much fun. It's kind of like what I imagine people who build Warhammer and paint it and that's have fun doing. And then I've been watching, keeping in the vein of anime, I've been watching My Hero Academia, which just finished its fourth season. Uh, that's all on Crunchyroll. And uh, Digimon. Digimon, the new season. Uh, they re for digital 20- monsters. Yeah, they, for for its twentieth anniversary, they did a reboot. Uh, the entire original cast and the uh, and the series has come back, and it's on it's on its uh, third episode. 
I reserve my opinion. Yes, because Brie doesn't like. Because I'm not like, sure. Yeah, Brie doesn't like how fast it's oh. moving. Uh, Did, Digimon are uh, the yeah, champions. I've, I've been doing. I've been watching a lot. Of <laughs> Thanks, stuff. Andrew. Oh, and also, I've been watching One Piece, which is now on Crunchyroll. It's 900 episodes long of a anime, and we're on episode 70. Seventy-six. Yeah, we're on episode seventy-six. So that'll keep you a little bit busy during the quarantine. A little quarantine. bit busy. A little, busy. Just a little, little bit occupied. I'm glad those right. Digimon are okay because I I can't remember them very well, but I felt like their heads seemed like their heads seemed like they were too big for their bodies, and yeah. I was worried about them. Especially so I'm glad I'm I'm glad that they're still that they're still alive and they haven't developed like too much like severe health problems very as true. a result of their fair, proportions. Fair. Are you worried that they're like poodles? They've just been bred for the market. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, sorry, and Breed, what would you recommend? I've been. My time has mostly been divided between catching up on some reading and watching Graham play Final Fantasy VII. Um, but in terms of books, I've been rereading the Dresden Files, which is a bit of a departure for me. I'm more of a high fantasy kind of person, but this is more urban fantasy, so it's quite different. Um, I also caught up on um, the sequel series to. What are you doing? The sequel series to um, His Dark Materials. Uh, which, yeah, I know, I, I wasn't aware of. Um, but yeah, it was very interesting. It tells the part of the story that you never hear, which is all I'm going to say about it. Okay. Um, and. Um... Did you watch his Dark Materials? Yeah. On BBC? Yes. Watch uh, the first season. I think they did a really good job. Cool. James McAvoy's cool. cool. <laughs> <laughs> he is indeed. Um, and actually, I to be honest, I quite like what they do with the character there, which I think is based on the books, but it's a very interesting yeah. way of dealing with that kind of character. They I did. A, I think they adapted what they needed to adapt, but kept the spirit of it. Um, all right then. In terms of recommendations from myself, Trolls World Tour, Darren. No. Yeah. <laughs> Have you guys seen Trolls World? Yes. Tour? Very unfortunately. Oh, it's so bad. Yeah, that's when that's when I decided not to get Amazon. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, 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 no. I, I was given it as a review and I regret it. Or, or oh. Hold on, wait. I think I might have opened iTunes. I think Darren <laughs> suggested I, I buy something on iTunes. So I opened iTunes <laughs> uh, films and it was like the first thing suggested. Does this thing not have any... I suppose, like, Quality it, filters. when you open something for the first time, it maybe knows nothing about it. It's probably you. because it's the highest highest rated thing right now, because so many families yeah. are getting it to shut their kids up. Yeah, it's right. the most successful digital release of all time, basically. Um, wow. Yeah. yeah. It's almost <laughs> as if no one can <laughs> leave their house. See, Andrew... <laughs> And listeners can't see, but Andrew is eating something, but he paused, like, while his mouth is open, about to bite, to turn to the mic and say, what? <laughs> yeah. it also, it's moment. all over his beard. Um, yeah, there's there's <laughs> lots of there's lots of melted um, uh, blue cheese just like streaming down my my uh, my beard. Okay, so a couple of quick recommendations then uh, for people stuck at home. Um, first one is because we didn't get to do an Indian summer this year, we're hoping to do it when the quarantine lifts uh, with Rutul Giovanna Rampazzo and Babu Patel. Um, I would recommend Bombay Rose, uh, which is an animated film sort of the Dublin Film Festival. I'm not sure where it's available online. It may not be available to stream yet. It may be when this comes out, but it's absolutely beautiful to look at. It's one of the most stunning animated films I've seen in a very long time. It's absolutely magical, and I think it does some interesting stuff in terms of like something that even I picked up in terms of uh, Indian cinema 
Um, in that there was a moment where I was like, hey, are they doing that uh, that Salmon Khan thing? Yes, they're doing that Salmon Khan thing, uh, which I feel, you know, very sophisticated for being able to say. Uh, another recommendation that I will say very, very briefly, uh, because it will have been released on digital uh, shortly before this episode came out, Calm With Horses, uh, which is the Irish gangster film set in the west of Ireland, um, which stars Barry Cowan and Cosmo uh, Jarvis, along with Neve Algar. Um, it's well worth seeking out. It's it's Nick Rowland's story about a boxer who finds himself embroiled in a gangland feud on the west coast of Ireland and tries to figure out if it's possible for him to get out. Um, it's very, very worth watching. It's very atmospheric. Uh, and the west of Ireland looks fantastic in it. The west of Ireland is a wonderfully cinematic landscape anyway. It's a shame Naturally. that we haven't really capitalized on it, um, you know, as much as we might have. Um, and it's kind of nice to see film crews going out there and using those to kind of give a kind of a rich, evocative atmosphere. Because again, yeah. it, for, a, for a gangster film, it kind of has that nice sort of mood to it as well. It has a kind of ambience, that sense of a, a place which is kind of like craggy and rough and kind of, you know, sort of like has been through some terrible stuff, but, you know, kind of fits with the mood of a gangster film, I think. Yeah, because yeah, I had stuff like the 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 Quiet Man was wasn't a lot was wasn't most or all of that filmed on um, and it's free on location. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and the um, I think more recently um, was it wasn't a terrific movie, I don't think, but um, um, uh, Calvary, I think, um, yeah, uh, demonstrated it quite well. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah, I wasn't a fan of Calvary either, to be honest. No, no. I suspect the fact that we're from Sligo may have contributed oh, okay. in some sense. Well, to, um, do you know? I recently saw there were... rocked. That's an amazing film. I was maybe not a huge fan of a rock. <laughs> there were all these people coming out of the cinema when I saw it, um, including there were there were some there were some priests. Um, who, the target who, who, were, for who were watching because they I, I guess they had been kind of like sent sent to uh, or had decided to go along to kind of check it out and see what what kind of a, a portrayal it was or how and, and and I actually thought it was sympathetic enough yeah but um yeah there were a whole lot of people coming out and they're like that's not how we sound like at all <laughs> but, um his his accent was cut <laughs> and um and yeah, but it, it, I was thinking, like, do, do you actually expect them to them to put that voice <laughs> in a movie? Anyway. All right. So uh, before you, you'll be joining us next week when you come back and we talk about Howl's Moving Castle. But in the meantime, <laughs> if people are looking for a bit more Graham, a bit more Breed online, where can they find you guys? Breed, where can they find you? With great difficulty. Yeah, she's nowhere. Uh... <laughs> So if you have nothing better to do during quarantine, see if you can find Breed online. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 a where's Wally of uh, finding Breed. Uh, I'm much easier to find. Um, you can find me at Game Air, uh, my video game website, uh, where we discuss video games of all ilk. Um, I'm on Speaking Geek, where we also just discuss uh, films, video games, TV shows, everything. Uh, Graham Geek Era on Twitter, and I also now Twitch. I'm now I stream video games. I'm currently playing Divinity: Original Sin 2, a 200-hour uh, video game that I am 10 hours into. <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> so I'm currently doing that. That's, it's a good thing that you you know you you don't have much else going on. No, <laughs> yeah. I've saved a ton of money, so you can imagine Domino's are like really happy with me right now. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so yes, and heads up actually, listeners, just to give a heads up, um, there's been a new entry on the 250, literally fresh, almost as Ooh. we've been organizing Oh this. yeah, Breed's uh, Silent Vice. Breed, we did ask Graham, we did assume that Graham was keeping you in the loop. 
Um, A Silent Voice, which is the animated film from 2016. Japanese animated romance has entered the 250. Um, So with a bit of luck, we might be extending uh, anime just a little bit further to include that discussion. But that's something we'll talk about next week when we're back talking about Howl's Moving Castle. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. No problem. Thank you. Thank you, you guys. Thank you, Breach. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, Darren. I better go. I think dinner's ready. (laughs) 